Hello, thank you for tuning in. My name is Ezra. My name is Robert. And I'm Patty X. And we are the Sunday Hustlers Book Crew. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Uh, we have a lot in store for you uh, and a lot to update you on. Uh, just a quick disclosure. There is going to be some sensitive content for this episode. Yes, uh, regarding this sensitive. Uh, book. Uh, and we should let you, let you know now. Uh, but why don't we ease into the episode a little bit, guys? How are you guys been? What have you guys been up to? Um, I've a new job since we're like... The last episode, I guess, that's been kind of cool. Oh, yeah, nice. Definitely. Congratulations. Fun stuff. Sweet. Patty, Moving what about up. you? Um, what have I been doing uh, lately? Um, just a lot of, like, reading and stuff because now, uh, like, the Delta thing is going on. And so it's like I got to go out and have fun for, like, two weeks. And now I'm back to, uh, you know, uh, doing all my quarantine activities. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean... I rediscovered reading again during quarantine last yeah. year. So, I mean... Yeah. Got some got some good positives out of it. Same here. I feel like a lot yeah. of people did um, get to, like, rediscover reading during quarantine. Like, they finally got so bored of <laughs> playing video games and stuff that they're like, okay, I think... I think maybe I'll pick up a book. Like, I think maybe I can feel my brain turning to mush. I'll try to yeah. put some words in here. There's nice. also no more movies to watch. Yeah. Oh, that's what oh, I felt yeah. like. Like, we ran out of movies, but we were fine. Yeah. I had a whole stack of books that I was just like wanting to read. Just mm-hmm. then I bought other things instead. Yeah, yeah, no. But uh, still, like, I read so many books. I've, I hadn't done that in a while. Yeah. And I felt like it was me being secluded in my apartment. Do you feel, let yeah. me ask you, this is a weird question. Do you feel like, like, when you read books now, do you just sit down and read them for like a couple, like, hours at a time, or like an hour, like an hour and 45 minutes? And that was like something that you had to build up doing? I felt like during quarantine, I was like exercising that a little more. Mm-hmm. So I was able to polish off more pages but now i feel that the leisures of being able to go back out i'm st- I'm, I'm i kind of like reverted yeah. but i mean I'm, i still have the practice of reading because of last year so and i mean yeah. it took a while for that practice even before that because i did slow down since like before quarantine yeah i was uh well i i think i'm getting like my reading's just getting faster like my comprehension's getting a little bit better from when i first started so uh, I've noticed like I've been reading more, but I usually read like a small portion, like like an hour a day or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, before like, then, I do like before I go to bed, like mm-hmm. half an hour or an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a good time. I also like doing it like on my days off or something. I'll just spend some time reading, do my hobbies and all. No, yeah, Here's a question that's part of Patty's question. Yeah. So because now that we're doing this, do you feel like you're reading more leisurely now, or do you feel like your your like your understanding of what you read is different too? And do you like that? Um. I think to answer your question, I, I definitely read. I read less leisurely, right? <laughs> no, but I mean it's just true because I have to read these books for the podcast, and I really have to meditate on on some of these things, especially the book that we're about to discuss. Maybe in, mm-hmm. in just a little bit, you really have to meditate and think about these. So I, so I think yeah. I've been doing less express reading for leisure, but I think that the reading that I do now is more like in tune with just. Like I, I see different things. I see things that I, I couldn't have seen before if I wasn't trying to read uh, very rigorously. Mm-hmm. And even when you're not reading very rigorously, you still pick up on details, phrases, words that you've seen before in the novel or that you've seen referenced in other books and stuff like that. Yeah, oh. that's a good point. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of different ways you can read. You can read leisurely, but oh, there's also just heavy books you know yeah. like uh, Hurricane Season by Fernanda Montour um, that we should probably start getting into yeah definitely now, <clears throat> I want to get started I mean first off uh, 
this was a pretty heavy read. How did you guys feel about it? Uh, well, when Robert? I first started reading it, I guess, like, because I think I read it before y'all did, at least yeah. started to, like, I felt like there was an anxiety that was going along with it. Um, I usually read it out, like I said earlier, so not being able to pause while reading something like that, like with those random distractions that you usually get when you read, you know, like, no, just kind of stop. Yeah. Um, you just kind of lose that sense of comfort of leisurely reading and you feel trapped mm-hmm. in hurricane mm-hmm. season. Yeah. And it's not as if this book has easy transitions either from like chapter to chapter or from dialogue to dialogue. It's just a darker ride for just like all your emotions. And mm. it's got you wondering whether or not like, as you're reading this, is this like, okay? Is this like, right? Why am I reading this? Mm-hmm. You know, like all these purposes and wondering if are these real situations in the world or am I just reading pure fiction? And yeah. so I just think it's kind of like um, Milton's writing created a path of courage for the reader and for herself as a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. I agree. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely can can see that. Yeah. How the book makes you feel like claustrophobic, who tries to like eviscerate any sense of enjoyment that comes out of like reading and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I I thought it was it was a really hard book to get through like you can read the first chapter because it's just a couple pages Mm -hmm. but then you like dive into it and it's just this language that each character has you know yeah uh that you have to switch into um it was a good book man but it is uh not for the lighthearted i gotta say but um so patty uh now for our season uh we each of us got to choose two books yeah uh and you chose this one so uh why did you choose hurricane season okay well I picked Hurricane Season because we're like halfway through the season and kind of like in the eye of the storm. So like I felt like on a on like a metatextual level, um, mm. Hurricane Season kind of fit that. Okay. But really though, I I I picked Hurricane Season because of how like unrelenting and unflinching uh, the novel is as it like interrogates all these like modern crises like femicide, poverty, and systematic violence. And I think that uh, through the kind of brazenly vulgar exploration of these uh, matrices, uh, Fernanda Melchor really shows true courage and what it means to be a writer in the 21st century dealing with the issues that, that are affecting you. And so I, I feel like um, I've given y'all a little bit to chew on about uh, the book, but how about you tell us a little bit more about like the publishing info, Robert? Oh, well, really quick on what you said, too. I just... I just think it's great. Like it did, it did yeah. take courage to write that book. Like, no, absolutely. Yeah. When you, if you ever read any of her interviews, she talks about like her life first, so you get a sense of her, kind of like what she does within the book for mm-hmm. all of our characters. Mm-hmm. And then later, you, you just get like the full reveal. Mm-hmm. And you know, people go through so much, and there's different outcomes for all those kind of stressors. And I think what Fernanda did was a representation of her life. And within this book, you get every character's deepest struggle, and but the worst outcome, mm-hmm. because she didn't want this book to be something easy to read and understand you know but very relevant for those who may go through something like what these people go through in the yeah. Book. Mm. but yeah <laughs> i just uh, i don't know i really enjoyed it so yeah. again it's a hurricane season by fernanda melchor uh the translator for this one was sophie hughes uh fernanda melchor was born in veracruz mexico in 1982 <laughs> And I think veracruz is very near the actual town or like veracruz is a representation of the actual town right that, I, like she chooses, like she uses it metaphorically. I think. Um, yes and, yeah. and no. That's like we I can't, understood. we can't confirm, we can't confirm it directly. But I believe that, like, 
Veracruz is, I believe that's the business, like that's kind of like the capital. It's a uh, port. Yeah. She says yeah. it's a port. Yeah. yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's supposed to be like Veracruz, I believe, is still like a city in the fictional like state. But La Matosa is like a fictional town that exists like outside of the state. It's like if you had like Houston, t- a story that was like set on like Bumbleville, which is like a village, a fictional village near Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. Know, kind of like, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. She originally started off in journalism, so yeah. that's how she started finding about finding out about these kind of stories, but always was inspired to be a novelist by reading authors like Chimic Capote, how he's kind of like a journalistic perspective, mm-hmm. but writing about true events and just very gross. And in her own way, she had this idea that if she were to practice journalistic like writing and like I guess reviewing, that all those topics would feel more real and personal to like her and the reader. And mm-hmm. um yeah, so I think the that kind of helped with finding the story, you know. Yeah. Like she found a purpose with just reading random articles. She just studied those kind of things, and then one fell a pen on her lap that she wanted to accentuate, and we'll get more into that. But the background yeah. of the book is Hurricane Season is her first English debut, published in the United States uh, by, I think, what's the copy you have, Patty? I have the... New direct. It says it's a new directions book. Oh, literature random house. Yeah. So they published in the in the states, and then I have a copy from Fitzcarraldo, which yeah. I think everybody's always kind of kind of keen to looking at. I'm jealous. I like that it was, one. Yeah, it's really nice. It's just all blue with the white font, and um, it was a uh, the 2018 winner of the English Pen Award, and it was also shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize, just like Till and Hurricane Season was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of its first winners, like our winnings of a nominee, was in Germany. Can't yeah. remember what the award was, but I think um, it's kind of cool that Fernanda won an award in Germany after its first translation. I think it's pretty cool that us in the Germans seem to have a very similar taste in literature. First, we read Till, mm-hmm. which is by a German Austrian author, and now we're learning about Hurricane Season, which was highly lauded by the Germans. So I think maybe uh, in the future we'll just have to do some German books because I think there's a lot of there's some um, there's some well-read people over there, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah, it's just like the reception they got. Like mm-hmm. it got into Mexico, and people, she thought it would never leave that country you know the yeah. story of what it's about femicide mm-hmm. and then for people in germany to read it and resonate with it so much that it was translated and, and immediately after it was translated it won an award so i think that shocked her as, as much as it shocks anybody mm-hmm. else but amen well deserved i mean especially with the translation this must have been difficult for miss uh, sophia hughes right yeah um, for this she did incredible one, job. Yeah. um especially yeah. when you consider all like the literary techniques that Fernanda Melchor uses the 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 vivacity of the language and all those intense run-on sentences. It must have been uh, very hard to try to translate and keep that magic. But I think Sophie Hughes did an excellent job. Yeah, Brooke, do you even think with like the language, like the very vulgar language, that was hard to interpret too? I think so. Because how do you write that without sounding like using phrases that we're familiar with, not? ones that are familiar like in spanish yeah there's a i think there's a lot of nuance to translating uh profanity especially when you think of like 
how how dynamic some of the some of the profanities we have in English are, and the different ways that they can be used to either accentuate like the ex like to be exclamative like something positive or something negative. Uh, I don't have to think. I don't think I have to give examples <laughs> or anything like that. But when you think of how dynamic those words are in our language, you just imagine having to uh, not only understand that in the context of the original language, but then having to translate it to capture that essence, that same. Uh, magical essence into English, it, it must be like super difficult. Yeah, be- this is really gross. Like it's not just vulgar. <laughs> no. you know? Yeah. Oh man. Uh, but yeah, let's get let's get back here. to uh, Hurricane Season. What was the uh, like uh, historical background of the book? You mentioned that Fernando Melchor was a journalist before, and you can clearly see the uh, journalistic influences in Hurricane Season. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, what I've heard from like her interviews, she was kind of like always doing a full-time job she was with in a relationship how she says and then wanted to write this book and she just stumbled upon the story about a witch being murdered right mm-hmm. but the witch in the town that it wasn't it was kind of like how she said it it was more i don't know vengeful wait wait, wait. so so this was a real story so that when oh, she's yeah it's okay, a so real she read story it, like yeah like, she read it in a news okay. article like she does yeah. like a daily mm-hmm. things like drinks your coffee reads a news article mm-hmm. yeah and okay. stumbled upon this one and i guess uh i think after when she read this, she had already quit her job. Like yeah. she wanted to write a story, mm-hmm. and so she didn't have like her credentials to be like in- investigative. You know, go yeah. to these towns and yeah. say like, "Hey, I'm working for this place. I'd like to get interviews with these people." No, yeah, that's not. She's going happen. in on her own, and uh, you can't really do that in a town where I think I don't. It's not. It's not Veracruz that the story takes place, like the real place, but in that town, it's similar to La Matosa because there's uh, the narcos. You know take over everything. They're in charge mm-hmm. of everything. And so she was afraid to actually approach people like, hey, who do you think committed this murder? Why? Mm-hmm. You're really investigated with this. So she just fictionalized it instead. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, I guess the behind the scene aspects that we, the, she was going through later something, yeah, she was really going through something to make this for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We wanted to, but uh-huh. had to change it and mm-hmm. kind of just make it up. But at the same time, she's uh, adding like, real realities that she's witnessed in her entire life living in Veracruz, Cruz, Mexico. There can be a lot of truth in fiction, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's definitely her motive for this, too. Yeah. I mean, like she said, she had no other choice. She would yeah. be risking her life if she was to get, like, the full-on interview with why this witch was murdered. Yeah. But her idea was that it was um, because, I guess, in those kind of places, it's just very, like, you just kill the witch out of vengeance, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like a, what is that word? Well, People don't, that's maybe something that, uh, maybe a truth that people don't want to deal with in that, that society that is maybe easier to just um, let things happen in, you know, whatever village or town she was trying to explore this place, this is crime, and that it was just easier to let this crime happen than it was to go around and start asking questions as to what the cause was. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to blame it on things like superstitions, superstitions, really, yeah. which we'll later see, which we definitely mm-hmm. see manifested in this book. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah, it's point. pretty cool. I know we tried looking up like the true story, but that was just kind of hard to find. But yeah. even just those tidbits of knowing the struggle it would have taken for her to write mm-hmm. the real story. Yeah, yeah, if someone finds an article and ends up listening to the episode, please send it to us. We'd, yeah. I guess we can get it translated and uh, read that one. That'd be cool. Live <laughs> in San Antonio, somebody <laughs> will definitely translate it for us. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, we should probably get into our, re- our you know official review of the book, what we thought about it. And yeah. I-, I got a lot to say, man. Take so, us off. man, Take it off, man. Hurricane season has been one of the most graphic and intense stories I've ever read. And if that didn't make 
three difficult enough, the writing style, like we've all mentioned, it left like no comfort and no room to pause. And so it's kind of hard to explain the compulsion uh, I had to continue reading it, not besides others, you know, just wanting to read for the podcast, but just myself wanting to read. I was trying to explain to my roommates and friends and when I tell them about the book, it's kind of difficult because um, it's a hard book to put down. And as I read it, I was engulfed by the story to figure out, you know, the how and why of this ominous murder story. And uh, I think it, it's really expanded my reading capacity because of the, the style it's been. And uh, I never thought I'd be able to read a book with this um, this format. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in finishing all the way through um, has been, uh, I feel like, very big achievement, at least for myself, just as a personal reader. And then the intensity the the author writes, it's so engaging. It's almost like a, a fever dream. Mm-hmm. I just you know, can't get out of until you Absolutely. finish the book. Um, so when I was talking to my roommates and friends and all, I the best analogy I could think of is this. The, the same reason you look at an accident on the road and or tune into like intense news when we see it on TV is the same reason you can't put this book down. More than that, it sheds light on the psychosis of predators and sexual violence in the machismo uh, culture of this small fictional village. So initially, I it was hard to like this book. I didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it was so shocking to be thrust out of my comfort zone that it was hard to appreciate for the novel what it was. A very skillfully written novel with idiosyncratic voices that create a herring atmosphere with the insight into very dark side of reality. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, you know, like most of these books are off the Booker Prize list and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we read, I read Hurricane Season, or not Hurricane Season, Memory Please first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I actually did read mm-hmm. Till Second. Yeah. And then, like, you get those kind of stories and you get Hurricane Season and it's like, oh, man, this is not what I expected. You know, like, yeah. once you start, you can't finish. But only that, like, I looked forward to because it is an Hispanic author. She's from Mexico. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's female. And mm-hmm. I thought that was just really profound. And, mm-hmm. you know, you hear about like a story about a witch, you know, we kind of, we have those kind of things in our culture. Yeah, we do. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just very drawing to me at least. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like I was going to be able to get a lot of like, um, reflection from it. Mm-hmm. But I think it just taught me more than anything I would have ever like known in my own personal life. So, yeah, that's a good point. And so, if you're somebody who wants to read a book that puts you to sleep or, I don't know, take you to another little world <laughs> and just make those feelings that like books are supposed to do, yeah, I think you should probably pick up a different book for now. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to see what the world has looked like through like unveiled eyes, mm-hmm. you know, like a real perspective, something that's just pure nightmarish. Um, and like Ezra said, it's like watching a car accident. Like you're driving by like know, rubbernecking, you know. Yeah, but this book has a torrent of words mm-hmm. that um, I don't yeah. know. They they take you to a breaking point, I suppose. Yeah, I I like that. Um, as well, that you didn't initially like this book, but you forced yourself to read it anyway. And I think that that's super important as a reader, especially as as readers as we go into like the twenty first century, is dealing with books maybe from people or perspectives that make us uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. I think that this is a book that in its essence, it really does strive to, to make you uncomfortable. I mean, we don't even have to go over the reasons, you know? 
Yeah. But we will later. <laughs> no, but, um, and so I think, yeah, it, it's really, uh, it, it makes you feel very uncomfortable. And to what you said, Robert, yeah, it's very raw and unfiltered. And it's not something where, you know, uh, the little print, you know, like little Harold in his purple crayon creates a magical world. It's like te- tearing that down and showing you, like, this is kind of the, the forces of, of the world that have, like, s- stripped this place and its people. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the portrait of Lamatosa. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, we should probably begin like a, a, a general review yeah. by talking about Lamatosa, the place where mm-hmm. it's set. Definitely. So hurricane season, uh, it's sit, set in the fictional town of Lamatosa, which is just kind of like a, a blip on the highway outside the state capital, barked by a string of broken down shacks, seedy dive bars and brothels. Lamatosa is a small community in semi-rural Mexico located in the larger state of Veracruz. That's just like to give you an idea of the geography. Uh, Veracruz is a state located in Mexico's southern region along the Gulf Coast. Uh, although the village of Lamatosa is surrounded by lucrative sugarcane fields and located alongside the highway en route to the capital and the business center of uh, the state of Veracruz, the complex forces of globalization have stripped economic, political, and social control away from the hands of desperate locals. And instead, power in this little village is concentrated in megacorporations, paramilitary forces, and, of course, uh, narcos. So, Lamatosa ends up uh, being a destitute village overrun by crime, poverty, and hopelessness. And basic social structures like the church, the education system, the medicine and law systems have completely collapsed under a combination of like ineptitude and carelessness and the decades of unmitigated corruption. Mm, man. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I mean, that kind of sums it up. I mean, it, it was, uh, it's a very small town. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we probably have driven through towns like this, you know, uh, maybe on a road trip or if you've been to Mexico, man, I don't know. Uh, it makes me think of like, how many times have you gone through a town and really not known the history, you know, yeah, of those people? It's maybe like the way they set it up. I think the way Melchor has us imagine it in the novel is that it's really only a town that exists out of the necessity of the, the fact that it's alongside the highway and right outside the capital. Mm-hmm. And really the thing that brings people there, uh, she makes multiple mentions of it too, are, are just the brothels, you know. Yeah. Where just sex, trafficking, and like drugs and prostitution happen and things like that. I think I had brought this up once with you guys, whether or not it's like a self-sufficient like mm-hmm. place. Like if these things are happening and one gear kind of works with the other, right? But you can't, mm-hmm. you can never pull one away because one just replaces it. Yeah, no, I think mm-hmm. that, that that's definitely an important aspect of the town too is that you see all, and I think we'll definitely get into this a little bit later in the deep dive, but we definitely see these multiple kind of interlocking forces, you know, talking about the drug trafficking with the narcos, but also how that goes hand in hand. It lends itself to also the sex trafficking that goes on in Lamatos, that those things are almost interlinked together. It's also another example on like how Melchor is trying to portray how how suppressed she was, try to get into that town for the truth. She mm-hmm. she has to show that this is what these towns are truly like in a fictional way. That I like how she adds that, but then she just like I said, every part of the book is there's no like real ending, like a soft ending for anybody. No. It's just pure violence. Nothing is supposed to be like. It's not like somebody has like the one character doesn't have a nice choice out. No. She makes everybody kind of suffer. And I feel like maybe her trying to go to this town and get this story was her final sense of saying, 
I, I've given up. This is mm-hmm. all I can do, and I'm just going to make this book pure. I think the novel ends on the final image of a hole of people like ascending mm-hmm. from a hole. And I think she makes it very clear that Lama Tosa very much is like this. It's this hole that's entrapped in a lot of these, these issues. Want to know yeah. something? I actually listened to an interview where she says that Lama Tosa is a hole digging itself deeper and deeper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. She uses those oh, words. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. hey, okay. You're on the right track, Patty. Mm-hmm. Smart guy. Smart guy. Putting that degree to use. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll make it do something, right? <laughs> See, there's no use on this podcast. <laughs> I, well, I think we, we talked a little bit about the town. We definitely gave uh, people something to chew on. We're going to come back to Lamatosa, the greater kind of mosaic of Lamatosa later. But, um, of course, you could not review this book without talking about uh, the writing style yeah. So, Ezra, you want to kick us off? You want to tell us a little bit about uh, the very strange and intense writing style of this book? Yeah. So each chapter is focused on a specific character. Uh, and I, when I read it and after getting that uh, background from Major, uh, I realized that it has a very – the essence of a journalist um, from her background. And so the reading is just – it's like one long paragraph. It is one long paragraph. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's a confession or someone gossiping. Mm-hmm. And it's like someone writing down notes and, and just speed writing all the way through as someone just, you know, telling you this whole story. Um, and I think that creates the pace and the difficulty in, in reading. But it once you get into it, I'd say like two or three chapters in, you get into this rhythm that she's created. And that's how we, we've all been hooked into it. Mm-hmm. So when you're... If you're thinking about getting uh, into this book, that's something I think I, w- I would definitely keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's around these characters now. Uh, so I think it's a good time to transition over to talk about our characters. Yeah. So um, usually we have like a more compartmentalized discussion where we break down kind of the characters or the plot and the narrative are separately. However, uh, this episode, we wanted to stay true to the spirit of hurricane season and channel that essence of the torrent so instead uh we're just going to have a long-form discussion about each of our major characters in hurricane season and analyze uh their unique vantage point and how their perspective influences uh the events of the novel and so uh naturally we should start with our first uh point of view character who is yesenia mm-hmm. yeah so the first character we meet and uh in many ways the person who works for the as a standard for the collective voice of the townspeople of Lamatosa is Yesenia. We initially learn of the central crime, the killing of the witch, through Yesenia, yet Yesenia is not an objective witness, and her initial assumptions regarding the crime, the cause, and the perpetrator, and I'm sorry, the perpetrator, prove to be colored by her own prejudices. Uh, through Yesenia, Melchor introduces us to the town of Lamatosa, the central crime, uh, the main subject, Yesenia's cousin, Luis me. And uh, I'm sorry, the main subject, Yesenia's cousin, Luis me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, I mean, this whole book is about the murder of a witch. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we don't really get into... Uh, I guess I, I, in this first chapter, you know, we we only have like a shallow glimpse into this life and what only she knows, uh, which I think is a big plot device that Montori uh, wanted to use yeah. to limit our understanding. She definitely sets it up initially so that we we think things about Luis me that maybe are not as true as we seem, and so. Mm-hmm. 
from like the maybe the really the first chapter of the novel, we, we kind of have in our heads that Louise me killed the witch, and now we just want to figure out what the motive is too. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, she says it or stuff that it's not a, it's not a book with like spoilers. Mm-hmm. Like we know who did it. You send these chapters very as the first one through her eyes. We kind of get that automatic knowledge, and the rest of the book really doesn't have any like anecdotes to say that he didn't do it mm-hmm. so the trail is kind of long to get to the point when things happen with mm-hmm. Louise me and the witch but for the most part it's not really a surprise you know yeah yeah like i think everything else like reading it is where things get mm-hmm. that's where the truthness is yeah and i mean it, it's a good i think it's a great uh place to start the book uh well i mean there's the little prequel uh, of like yeah. the kids finding the murder, but uh, I think it's a great place to start for the novel because you int- you also learn the history of these families yes, embedded yeah. in Lamatosa, which I think is a really important part. You have to keep in mind as you read further in, mm-hmm. you know, that these people have a history, you know, generations mm-hmm. like dealing broken with each family other, family dynamic, kind mm-hmm. of like somebody was yeah. in jail, somebody yeah. was dead, or yeah. just like how the grandmother chooses the son. Her son over yeah. every female in her family, and in mm-hmm. fact, yeah, Yesenia's chapter ends too. It ends with the grandmother dying in her arms, right? Um, because Yesenia had had ratted out Luis me to the to the police, mm-hmm. you know. And so she like, found that out through gossip too, right? Yeah, yeah, and she found it out through gossip because the two other neighbors came over and they're like, "Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened." And that was something Yesenia had been dealing with almost her whole life. Mm-hmm. And it felt like uh, even if she, even if she tried gossiping though, like she was just thought like dumb. Well, like nobody trusted her. They just always looked down upon so much. You also yeah. see like how gossip works in the town and how gossip is kind of like how, how the town operates on on kind of like like gossip really like the social dynamics. So all based on the gossip and kind of like these like weird kind of like politicking power plays like going to like tell like somebody's grandma that there's that their baby boys in jail and stuff like that knowing that it's gonna like cause a panic attack mm-hmm. yeah i think uh one thing i learned in in this chapter is like uh which we we get every chapter but in yesenia's we realized the the hierarchy of their uh society you know mm-hmm. um yesenia is work to the bone for her yeah. family while Louise me is just from her point of view is just so well i mean he kind of is but he's just taking drugs and laying around just being and, a little dead uh, just generally being a dead ass yeah i think yeah. it's okay to say it <laughs> yeah. i think fernanda also instilled a sense of herself in yesenia mm-hmm. because when fernanda was growing up she describes her life and her childhood as um she chose to be the bearer of her family's disappointments mm-hmm. like i don't think she was in a wow. rich family so she took it upon herself to be different more outgoing and just kind of like bear a weird weight you know and Mm. yesenia kind of does that with her family nobody knows what goes on in that house she takes care of her kids or like the siblings yeah and norma who we eventually talk about is also another female character who goes through the same kind of struggle Mm -hmm. and i think it's just so cool how fernanda puts so much into her writing yeah wow i I had no idea about that i definitely think it's important that we see yesenia that she's our first point of view character because she does help us not only see like the value of gossip and how it works in the town, but also she introduces us to the town and in the history. And we think it's objective, you know, we, we want to believe it's true, but also later we learn that some of the things she thinks are false. And I think that yeah. it's very important to have that tension. Yeah. I think, uh, one of the skillful things Mandro does is like every character is telling you about their side of the story, mm-hmm. but not all of it, 
is true and it, it you have to decide that yourself by putting these pieces together yeah. you know well the best chapter that wait are you gonna I talk know. about moon room i was gonna say one guy who definitely yeah. isn't telling yeah. the truth because everybody because <laughs> yeah. yeah, i started saying that i was like dude this is the best time so yeah, yeah moon room literally is somebody you can describe as like flipping a quarter you're yeah. gonna get heads or tails and he'll switch it up on you then too like oh well this or that and um from what we know from like Chabella and like from Yesenia too, at the Moon used to be like the man's man. Mm-hmm. Like he was this high machismo guy, kind of I don't know, glamorous dude, just living his best life. Mm-hmm. And I guess he gets in an accident and is just kinda of crippled. That's and right. yeah, so now he just becomes like a guy who just drives a van and does all the dirty deeds for everybody because yeah. Lama is a small town, but having a vehicle gets you places. And he witnesses so much mm-hmm. that the very first line is that I had no idea what those people did. Mm-hmm. He was talking about everybody in the back who killed the witch. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. he was the driver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just kind of, yeah. Like, I don't know. Culpability. Right. Lot, yeah. Lots of the chapter, the the chapter with Manu, I feel like it, it definitely brings up lots of questions about accountability, about culpability, about how culpable is the person who's uh, driving the van. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, let me just say structurally about Munga's chapter, I think it's important that Melchor puts Yesenia's chapter right next to Munga's chapter because we see uh, over there the very clear like binaries of the gender dynamics in Lamatosa. You see, like Ezra was talking about, mm-hmm. the way the, the kind of patriarchal order and the way that Yesenia is forced to take on all these chores. And then on the other hand, you see um, Munga, who's supposed to be like this father figure to Luismi, who really like... Um, fails morally fails him and also doesn't really like is very apathetic towards mm-hmm. towards having him as a son or even really trying to help him you know? yeah just treats him I like mean, some other vagabond yeah. kid out but i mean he gives him some advice throughout his story but yeah there's definitely not like a, a push mm-hmm. I, I think what i am understanding i guess from when reading Munra's uh chapter is probably that the men in this town have like a lack of responsibility that they've taken upon themselves. Uh, and so the women have to pick up this slack. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be Chabella or Yesenia or uh, Luis Mi's uh, grandmother? You know, they're the ones working that we see so often, except for these people who, you know, drift in and out of town. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the women who are really keeping this uh, town's uh, bars open and restaurants yeah. and everything going. It's like, what What do these guys do? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, most of them are just running drugs. Yeah. They're part of the narcos. Like, that's what they do. They're just this yeah. weird militant group, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people, but like I said earlier, the, the town is not structured on like, sure, the women are working and stuff, but as we find out with Chabela, like, they weren't a positive asset to that economy or mm-hmm. just like the society. Yeah. Um, you want me to go ahead and uh, talk about Chabella a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty important. Okay. So Chabella is the wife of Munra and the mother of Luismi. Um, she and um, Munra live in a little house separate from uh, Luismi. And she works at a club where she uh, ostensibly, she says she works as a dancer. Mm-hmm. But I think in the book, it's, it's very clear that she works as a madam and she works hand in hand with the narcos who frequent the club to uh, aid in like drug and sex trafficking. And so she occupies a very ambiguous position because on one hand, we do see her attempt to help Norma through uh, taking her to the witch. 
Um, but on the other hand, we don't know what the intentions are behind that. Mm-hmm. I think also yeah. uh, something about Chabela's chapter is you get, I think maybe that's one of the few chapters you get like a lighthearted moment because mm-hmm. you get Chabela giving Norma like these dresses and talking yeah. to her kindly and really giving her the ingredients to make breakfast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Fernando wanted to install like some kind of happiness, right? Like some kind of joyous moment, but then it's just all evaporated anyways. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. like these, this one moment of like a little like maternally tenderness mm-hmm. between them, but it's all evaporated and cons- subsumed by just like the evil around them and knowing that Chabella, this might be just like a moment of reprieve in what is otherwise might be a parasitic relationship. Mm. And Norma's so innocent, but like we come up to turn a little bit, but when you're coming from a place where that's not in your life consistently and somebody like Chabella shows up, she's definitely had, Chabella definitely has practice. I'm not sure with like Louise me though. Mm-hmm. She wasn't, always around for his life as we know that he was staying with his grandmother yeah under the watchful eye of yesenia mm-hmm. you know so but i guess for chabella to talk to norma the way she did it there were point there were points where it did feel like maybe there is a sense of caring about her because she was attached to louise me she wasn't just some stranger yeah that chabella pulled off the streets you know she was her son's like i don't know i guess girlfriend and whatever i don't know they don't really say it in the book, but no. But I, I feel the like thing is different. Yeah. I guess you know? I, I just I don't know. I feel like it, it still has kind of like a wolf in, in sheep's clothing mm-hmm. quality quality to it a little bit, considering Luis Mies had warned Norma like to stay away and that she would oh, okay, she yeah. would be nice to you. And then mm-hmm. it's also like okay, well, you know, yes, they have this tender moment, but like the other like twenty three hours of the day, Chabella is like pushing drugs and like working as like a mistress, like in these yeah. like clubs and stuff like that. Yeah. Where they're like specifically taking like young girls. So it's like how 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 tender is this really? And I think that her chapter is important because Yesenia kind of sets up the the parameters of the town and Munro we start to learn about a little bit of the crime with mm-hmm. Chabella's we start to learn really truly about the the perpetrators of this crime, you know? Yeah. And we start to see that ambiguity in people, that dual sidedness about whether you don't know whether um she's she's kind hearted, she has these maternal instincts, or if it's all towards this greater goal of trying to, to groom this this young this young woman who is in a very desperate situation. I mean she wasn't even true to Moonroom. No. Towards the end. So I mean she turned yeah. she she left him on red, she turned off the celly. <laughs> she did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she literally did. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. So I guess um should we get to uh, maybe our last this is kind of a I guess he's like a ma- main character, not main character. I don't know. We mm. I think we wanted to put the main characters as like the witch Norma and Luis Me, but this guy's kinda like in the middle brando, so Yeah. Let's have uh, it be like the transition. Yeah, yeah. Uh so our next chapter we want to go over is Brando. Uh, comes up a little bit later in the novel. Uh, Brando is a young man that has spent his entire life in Lamatosa. He grew up as a child, close to his Catholic mother. His father's absent from his life, and for a short time he's a sheltered Catholic boy. Yeah? Uh, but as he, as Brando grew older, he was influenced by like the park rats, and he found them. Uh, he found in them the validation and father figure he had secretly yearned for. So Brando soon adopted uh, also their destructive lifestyles and callous way of thinking. So as he, as they were all in the park, uh, mm-hmm. he binged on shops and did drugs and did low-level crime. He began to see people as objects, uh, just for sex, drugs, and money, uh, a means to an end. 
so his relationship with his mother his mother deteriorated into hate and resentment. Uh, he started to act manip- manipulative and vindictive, and he saw women only as empty vessels. Uh, and as we dive uh, delve deeper into Brando's psyche, it becomes apparent that he has suppressed feelings towards men and a visceral sexual and murderous desire for Louise Me. That's how I would sum up Brando. <laughs> so, yeah, he was definitely difficult. And he comes yeah. towards the end. He's one of the last chapters mm-hmm. you do read. And it's one of the longest ones, too. Yeah. Um, uh, it gives us a lot of insight on exactly what happened as far as the crime. Mm-hmm. and But it also... Uh, brings everything together as yeah. far as the other characters and their role to play mm-hmm. uh, in this town. And also you get like that interesting perspective of like, now it's not just femicide or just like these men being dominant towards women. They're just dominating over each other too. And you mm-hmm. see that through Brando and you get like the upbringing that led him to get that way. Yeah. I think that his chapter is so, is one of the most challenging. I think because it, it takes us, we see the arc Especially when we when we actually look at the chapter itself and we look at the way it starts when he's in jail and he just got beat up by the cops. We feel bad for him. But really the arc of his chapter is going from victim to victimizer. And, and we see when, you know, when mm-hmm. he starts off as like a little innocent boy and by the end of it he is about to abduct a young, a young boy. Yeah. And, you know, we, we see him in jail initially. We first meet him in jail and we're initially sorry for him. And then by the end of it, we're like, oh, no, like Luis me's there, you know, mm-hmm. like we feel now we feel scared that he is now in like the same cell as like Luis me and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not just that he becomes so violent, like mm-hmm. throughout the book, it's like he's so violent. He's not even aware of it. And it's mm-hmm. like situations where he's discovering his feelings for Luis me, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. We're just kind of do you think that he's. I'm going to use the word. He, at one point he says, when he's about to like um, a sodomize him, you know, yeah. he goes, my friend, but this faggot, like it's right after each other. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's just kind of, it's just really harsh to hear him talking about Louise me like that. You know, he's mm-hmm. his friend, but yet he's doing these things to him because he's in love with him, but he hates how he's in love with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he hates that he has like these, well, this he hates himself. Sense I mean, of tenderness yeah. towards him. And yeah, yeah, you really see how like a person, I think with Brando, you know, he starts off as like the the every impressionable young male, and you mm. really see how the the forces outside of his control mold him into like this kind of like product, and kind of what you would say is like another victim of the system, like another product of of his environment. You know, mm-hmm. but it's just yeah. kind of you know because it, you get to the point to hearing about Brandon how he wants to just murder too. Mm-hmm. You know, and his upbringing it is from like a very religious upbringing with just his mom. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Ezra, he didn't have a dad. You know, like mm-hmm. um, his dad would send him money. We find out, but he would tell his mother he's only doing this because we're just like we're just trash. He's just taking care of what he just left aside. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I think, yeah, just him talking about Louise me like that because also to we find out so much about Louise me's relationship with the witch because it's through the jealousy of mm-hmm. of Brando yeah. that we yeah. hear about that. You know, mm-hmm. the true relationship that Louise me had with the witch. And also yeah. with um, later on how Luis me had that affair with that engineer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that that you find out through Brando. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Just kind of how he, when he's in the situations to confront the reality of who he is, he just becomes purely violent. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, there's a lot to Brando uh, just from his arc, from victim to victimizer, but also, I mean, 
this weird uh, understanding he has of the world, thinking it's okay to do the things he did, or he doesn't. Uh, I guess he's a little bit of a sociopath because he he thinks it's fine. You know, yeah. I mean, Does, I don't doing, know. Does, I don't think but, so. I think he's running away from a lot. Like he's always planning to get somewhere else. Like yeah. until he was locked up, you know. Even when he was like running away from after murdering the witch, he was going to kidnap that kid. But I mean, I don't, I don't think he felt bad for any, any of the things he did. Oh well, yeah, sociopath. Yeah. yeah, he's not going to feel any kind yeah. of like human emotions toward it. But yeah, I mean, we're witnessing it through the eyes of what Fernanda allows us. Yeah, so maybe he's not a sociopath because he does have feelings to it. Well, but, it, it's uh, also the idea that yeah. maybe through his chapter we see how he becomes numb to these things. So mm. he he initially okay. he does you know he initially like he he does feel bad. But then we we see him eventually lose that that sense of humanity. Yeah, there's a lot of those instances with like where he's being influenced by those older men. Yeah, like the guys, in the, the yeah. guys in the park who he just lives to impress. Yeah, 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 man. Uh, they tell him what's right and what's wrong, and he just takes their word for it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even uh, consider what it may do to other people. Even when he's having like a normal sexual relationship with like another woman, even though she's older, even then he finds it like he um, perverts it too. You know, yeah. he perverts those. That that natural feeling he makes it disgusting mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. It's just different. Yeah, and we it, hear how he morphed into that thought. I, I guess we. I mean, when I think about the the ranks, I was like, Melchor gave us so much uh, insight in, into Brando, mm-hmm. um, and who's really like the the center of this crime. You know, mm-hmm. the center. Uh, I guess we can. Put him at the center of, of crime for La Matosa. Yeah, I definitely you know? think you can you can absolutely make an argument that it's less about whatever the money disagreement with Luis, me, and the witch, and it's way more uh, perpetuated. The crime is way more perpetuated by like Brando's intense like jealousy and also like dislike uh, mm-hmm. of of the witch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of resentment there. Now uh, you bring up the witch. We've been yeah. mentioning her throughout um, the whole episode so far. Uh, why don't you give us, uh, tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I will uh, be more than glad uh, to talk, to tell our listeners a little about the witch. So the witch is murder as a central point of hurricane season, uh, but there's not a chapter uh, dedicated to her. Uh, as readers, we're given very little information on the witch outside of the, the preface uh, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the book and then yeah. what we hear characters say. Uh, the witch in hurricane season is actually the daughter of an older witch uh, that used to live in La Matosa. She is known only as the witch, just as her predecessor was. No one no- knows her name, nor if she ever had a name to begin with. It's part of the mystery about her. Uh, she dre- she's dressed in all black with a veil across her face, and uh, she mainly takes on like the midwife duties, or like the, uh, as we would know in Spanish, the culandera duties. Uh, to the uh, sex workers who live in La Matosa and also to mm-hmm. like some of the people there like trying to give them like uh, cures to, to, to lift yeah. their bad hexes mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, the role she plays in La Matosa is kind of that of a living legend. Uh, children fear her, parents kind of hate her, <laughs> and the park rats party with her. Uh, everyone in the town of La Matosa has something to say about the witch or something to blame on her at least. Uh, in this, It's in this context that a group of young boys find her body and the mystery of hurricane season unravels. Yeah, uh, I mean... And- it's kind of a weird way to go about in this episode because we're talking about the witch in the middle uh, mm-hmm. and we've already introduced it, but it's um, we these boys find uh, the witch's body and then we hear about Yesenia and Munra and all just to give you guys some, some context uh, mm-hmm. for our listeners who haven't read the book. Uh, 
did you want to say something about it? Mostly, like, like just the witch, I guess, is, like, what we get from her. We find out, like, she's, like, a, she's transitioning. Or she's, like, I guess she claims to be, she's a man claiming to be a woman. I don't know if she ever really claims it. Uh, no, I think it's I, just part of the gossip, right? All the rumors and stuff. I, I believe that the witch is is a is a trans woman. Like, okay, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I think in real life too, how we describe it being based on a true story, I think mm-hmm. it was the same situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's part of that, like, um, just machismo, gross, like act towards those kind of people. That maybe mm-hmm. in real life, that's why he was murdered too. She was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, man, she it, it's she. I mean, she just has a, a sad story from. Yeah. I mean, you don't even really know who her father is i mean from i think she she's just kind of like hiding in as she grows up uh she's in that house mm-hmm. uh but she's just like in she's just under the table or like in cabinets or you know doing uh the chores uh for the older witch uh she has a really hard upbringing um and then she just plays she just assumes this role you know she's given into this role of, of the witch still she can't escape it yeah she um, has to kind of like inherit that that title from from the previous witch and it's almost like because that's just what people expect this person to do or they want this person mm-hmm. to do you know yeah. or maybe it's also partly because they're they're trans and maybe they're just relegating them to the category of being a witch instead of trying to be a, f- a fully fledged person yeah and on top of that you know on top of having already this kind of like marginalized identity um the witch has to do kind of a little bit of like the dirty work um for the town you know definitely things yeah. like things like administering kind of medicine which is questionable mm-hmm. um it, because nobody else will do it because they don't have the resources to go to the hospital or because as we later find out uh the hospital is actually the opposite of helpful yeah I just think it's interesting how, like, during the day she's helping, like, the women, and then at night it's, like, a satisfaction thing towards the men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, she's doing all these things for, like, the women, like, we talked about weird medical practices and stuff, but then at night she's just doing crazy drug-filled parties where a lot of the people that attend are just male. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're just a party, you know, they're they're doing sexual acts with each other, well, too. Mm-hmm. I, I think the implication is that, like, it's not just, like, an all-guys party, like a frat house or something <laughs> like that. Oh, that no, uh, these guys are all, like, um, gay and, like, having sex with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, think that that's, it was, like... Uh, they have to go at night because they're ashamed, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they don't want people to know that they're going to the witch's house. So. They that, also kind of blame yeah. it on, like, numbing themselves with drugs, too, though. So. Yeah. I just think that's weird, and it's just part of the reason why... Um, there was that growing tension between the witch and Louise me too mm-hmm. was like the drugs fueled that relationship. And then it kind of fueled like the end of it too. Cause it became about money. Yeah. She had, I mean, the witch, she just, uh, she bears so much weight and responsibility for people's shame, uh, and resentment for even themselves. Yeah. You know? People like they don't know how to express it themselves. Mm-hmm. So they take it out on her or, um, they go there to get help and then, turn their mm-hmm. back on her and you know and we talk we, crap about her we see a portrait of somebody who has been un- unduly burdened you know not only yeah. by the way that people choose to not accept their, their identity not the way that the tension that comes from people's prejudices but also yeah. because of the place that they have to occupy the things that they have to do in this in this town you know to try mm-hmm. to to try to get by and like to try to help people yeah mm-hmm. man you know it, it's it, i think it's great that 
uh, I, I think it just shows like what a good book this is, man. Because we've gone to this point in the discussion uh, about the witch w- without even having a, uh, a chapter dedicated to it. Yeah. You know, just all these context clues, mm-hmm. all these breadcrumbs in these older chapters. You know, mm-hmm. um, then you slowly put things together and you have an understanding of this person. Um, man, so good, Metro. So good. <laughs> yeah, like another character yeah. that we don't really get a full chapter of is also Louise Me too. Yeah. Both of them are just kind of like served mm-hmm. throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Uh, now, Louise Me is uh, one of the main characters in the novel, uh, along with the witch. He's a young man, probably around 18 years old, uh, and lives with his mother, Chabella, and stepdad, Munra, who we've already heard about. He lives in a shack behind their home and spends most of his days drinking, taking drugs, and partying with the witch or park rats or Munra uh, or all above. His connection with the witch is uh, pretty much the drug business he does with Brando and the complicated relationship uh, and love relationship they have for each other. Uh, Now, he's a very peculiar person, though, and with a very quiet nature. Um, but I, I think had, may have a good heart because uh, he t- takes in and shelters Norma in, an, in his very modest living conditions, even though he doesn't have much to offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sadly, he's also naive and is easily manipulated by others like Brando in the story. So we'll take uh, more in depth after we introduce uh, other characters. But let's uh, talk about Luis. What do you guys think about him? Tragic Bronson. <laughs> I don't know if I feel bad yeah. for him or if I felt like. He was so self drug and like he was just so self medicated all the time that yeah. I I wasn't sure what he was aware of most of the time until he, Norma came around, mm-hmm. you know. But other than that, I felt like like I said through Brando is when you start seeing more of what Louise was doing on the sidelines, like mm-hmm. his real story. Yeah. And I just kind of thought that um, most of it seemed unfortunate. Like he, maybe he did he want he maybe he did want his kid. Maybe he did believe the engineer's proposition of getting a job. Mm-hmm. And leaving La Matosa and doing things maybe that he and Norma could do together. Yep. And it just felt like even he was able to have some kind of dream in that area that where he lived. Mm-hmm. No matter, yeah. he, he was the lowest of the low. Everybody in the town knew who he was probably. Never really took care of himself yet. But he still had this weird sense of ambition for something. I don't know. And then you find out the outcome at the end of the book. I think he has an arc. Uh, like oh, most of our characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, we have a our initial understanding of Louis Me from Yesenia, but by the end of Brando's chapter, we have a completely different understanding mm-hmm. yeah. of him and how he's changed and why he is that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patty, uh, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that's a a good um, a good place to start because when we first, I think, meet Louis Me, we're a little resent because Yesenia tell I think Yesenia just tells us the reader that it was she knows it was him and stuff and initially I think we're a little and then we run into him in Munger's chapter mm-hmm. being a real you know just being a real sad sack and yeah. things like that and we assume the worst about him because we don't know what's going on with the full extent to what's going on with him and Norma yet mm-hmm. and so we are, are really our worst assumptions kind of run true and I think that we're very apprehensive we want to regard him as as guilty almost as soon as we we run into him when he starts saying things like oh man the cops tried to hold me up you wouldn't believe it like i didn't do nothing you know Mm -hmm. it's like oh okay yeah sure (laughs) you know (laughs) but then by the end of brando's chapter we we really see that this is just kind of like a sad a sad person a really like a really kind of sad kind of person with like a glimmer of, of hope a glimmer of goodness in them that ends up being crushed by like the circumstances of the world around them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Also, like his hatred towards the witch grew off of two things. One of them was what happened with Norma, right? When he finds out why mm-hmm. she was, why Norma was in the hospital, it's kind of the witch's fault. 
I, not really the fault, but and then again too with that whole fallout between the money because the witch gave Louis me money to go buy drugs and he had supposedly lost it and blamed him for stealing it mm-hmm. and they had just a huge. I mean, they they describe it too through Brando's chapter that it was just a pure, just a little fight in front. I, yeah, in the house. I, I thought it was more. I thought it was all all that stuff like the money and and like the, was all more secondary to just the idea that Brando was was jealous of the relationship between Luis me and the witch. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he was also disgusted by them because they would like show affection in public. Like they oh, would not yeah. be afraid to show affection. And, and that like just like repulsed Brando. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but um, more back, back to like Luis me though. Um, yeah. I think his, his character is is very important because you see those initial assumptions about him uh mm-hmm. trumped and you end up seeing the the goodness of his character and that really he's a he is a sad person he's someone that's addicted to drugs and uh his only method of getting money is through like selling his body but mm-hmm. you also see that he's he has like a glimmer of, of goodness in him that he's not been totally destroyed or he refuses to be destroyed by the society and i also see- feel like uh he's you see him though and he's just like it's like an empty shell of someone mm-hmm. that used to be there, where someone who had hopes and, and dreams for themselves and let go of them really early on, and maybe he, Luis, me really understands that, you know, Lamatosa is, is a hole, you know, and he's mm-hmm. just living there, uh, doing whatever he does because he has a way of going through this town. Everyone knows him; they laugh at him, but he just shrugs it off, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing really bothers him until I guess what. Well, Norma, um, you know, but it, it's strange, you know, to, to see his, his reaction to things and, um, you know, how he just, he, I mean, he's filled with drugs, so obviously yeah. he's like not really there in the head, but, you know, he's choosing to do these drugs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he's getting away from something, you know, is it from himself or is it the past or the people in there, you know, why are they doing these drugs? You know? mm-hmm. I always think about that when I think of Luigi. Yeah, which is just growing up. Like he grew up with his grandmother, who's obsessed with her, fa- with his, with his son, his father, and yeah. even then he felt like he was a bastard his whole life. You know, oh, that's true. Yeah, so, with Jabila. Yeah, and then like Yasenia's always on his case, twenty four seven, because yeah. he's so big. Ba- there was a sense of jealousy in that relationship too. You know, because mm-hmm. we, yeah. we watched the grandmother choose the male all the time. Like yeah. that was always the hierarchy in the house. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though Yasenia's the one doing all the work, there was just that resentment towards, like, Luis oh, me. But I think. The drug field is just part of the town, you know. That's yeah. just something he fell into, and that's just not like he had a choice, you know. Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I think he, he represents a lot, just like the witch, you know. But we also don't have a, a chapter to him, mm-hmm. so we have to put these context clues together from everyone else. Uh, but it, I, it's sad because you know you don't get the complete picture, or the insight like we do for Brando or uh, Norma. You know? Yeah. No. Well, her chapter, yeah. she actually does have a chapter, too. So yeah, I think she that's, does. And hers was the, hers is like the actual point of the book, too. Kind of like the yeah. focal point of where everything starts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's the center point. Yeah, she pretty much is, because nothing starts without her, you know. Yeah. So up till her, up till the readers assume that the, it's about the murder of a witch is what we think the book is about and the social collapse of Lamatosa, But in actuality, it's the discovery that Luis May has of Norma. And he kind of just takes her in, because as he witnesses, she's just on the streets by herself. Because she's running away from home, from her own family tragedies, because apparently nowhere you can live is just safe for a female and in, in any age group. Mm-hmm. And so 
Louise me, like I said, knows this, this town pretty well, sees that she could be abducted because that's just how people are. And I think she's actually being stalked, too. I think yeah, he catches she is. the eyes. Yeah, when she comes she into somebody, town. Yeah. yeah, by the narcos. Mm, so then he just kind of takes her home, and then, yeah, everything unfoils. He, she meets Tabella. She meets the witch later. We find mm-hmm. out her just, um, her dark past. That we'll, I really want to get into more a little bit later, but for now, I guess Norma's just somebody that, for Melcher, was the hardest to write about. Yeah. I think she felt too much of a reality in what she, the voice that she gave Norma for the book. Yeah, this one was probably the most unsettling one to read. I mean, Randos was, was messed up, but I think Norma just like, it was very sickening to read that one. Um, and that's the hardest one, I think, for if anyone's going to pick up the book, that's going to be the one you want to mentally prepare for. And uh, I guess, are we going to spoil it now or you want to save it for later? But pretty much this dark secret, I guess, uh, she's bringing along with her hometown. It unravels in Lamatosa, which is creates the, the hurricane for hurricane season. You know? Yeah, I I think that it's it's important that Noima's chapter kind of comes in the middle because I feel like that's kind of like the, the eye of the storm that really the, the events that precipitate hurricane season, that precipitate the murder of the witch are in effect, they're, they're not caused by Norma, but they're caused by the things that, that happened to Norma. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important that Fernanda Melchor um, gives, even though even though we don't have a chapter for Louise being the witch, I think it's important that she gives a chapter to Norma because a lot of times, you know, the, this is just the violence that we see in Norma's chapter, I think really is just uh, a reflection of the things that are ha- of things that happened and are, ha- are happening in the real world. And so I think it's important yeah. that Melchor gives uh, a young woman in her kind of situation a voice. I think it's amazing, too, that Norma's not from Lamatosa. Like, as we're no. saying, like we were saying, like, she comes from a small town. She ran away mm-hmm. on the verge of, like, I think it was potential suicide. You know, it, no, yeah, she was going to no, kill she, herself. In the past, there was no doubt. Yeah, she crossed yeah. Lamatosa, mm-hmm. and then even then, she's just going through, like, the worst well, suffering. It just shows you that, that it's 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 greater. The problems that, that I think that Melchor is really pulling at are greater than Lamatosa. You see, she wasn't just, you know, it's not just Yesenia and the women in Lamatosa who, who have to do all, like, the, the child ruling. It's also the women in this other small village, too. And it's it's it hints to something, something bigger. Yeah. You know, a lot of the social, um, like, you know, economical like i guess stances that they're they're stuck mm-hmm. in you know i mean they're they're stuck in these um little uh areas where they can't get a better life for you mm-hmm. know no i think it's absolutely critical in this book that we do get Noima's chapter and that she at least is given Fernanda Melchor and abuse her with a, a literary dignity that a lot of these these women they don't get to tell their stories they don't kind of get this and so i think that's important too Mm-hmm. And we also see, I mean, through her, the true disparity of of this society and how this society is really so willing to prey upon the most vulnerable. So I think overall, like we just finally discussed all the characters and yeah. the ones we think are the most important, mm-hmm. uh, Norma, Louise, me, and the witch. So, but overall, I think that to conclude the review, the importance of this novel isn't just its fierce style that it was written in but of the story that we read in itself. Mm-hmm. We're so desensitized to violence that these occurrences don't seem as impactful as impactful when you hear the stories like on the news mm-hmm. so, or when you see movies about them. So I felt like with Fernando, what she did with Hurricane Season was create a fictional story that isn't impossible because these things happen every day mm-hmm. and that the suffering isn't fictional at all and that with the combination of telling a story and telling the truth, 
we just get this really gutful representation from Fernanda about what La Matosa is, you know, and that it could be every city in Mexico potentially. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of categorizes like people like to say, so it's really gorish and r- written with her sense of just wanting to write about violence. And mm-hmm. she says herself that she's interested in violence, but not to that extent that mm-hmm. to her, this is just a pure truth mm-hmm. that it's necessary, I guess, you know, yeah. it's not her fault that these are the, the, what the real world, for her is like yeah no i definitely uh i definitely uh, agree about uh, all you said about like the the violence just being a, a reflection like she's just i mean she was a journalist before where do you think the inspiration from the story came from it yeah. came from a journal story that you know it came from a news story that she couldn't pursue because of the threat of violence mm-hmm. so think about that next time People try to criticize her for for using violence. Think about yeah. that, people. <laughs> <laughs> Arguing with no one. Yeah, but I think we just we, yeah. I think we, we're on a roll so hard. I think yeah. Yeah, we just want to get into. We want to just get into the yeah. deep dive. Yeah. 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 Oh, so so I mean, we've we've summed it up well. Uh, now the deep dive is a segment of our show where we go into the themes, uh, break down all the spoilers. Uh, and we really give everything away and we dive into uh, everything we've been egging all for. Patty, I think you're the mo- most excited uh, about yeah. this uh, section, but it's I'm pretty special. Too. Um, I, it's a pretty special uh, deep dive discussion. Uh, yeah. Patty, tell us why. Yeah, so um, before we get into it, though, uh, before we, because we're going to, we're probably going to cover some heavy stuff. Uh, we'd like to take a moment to really just be known to our, to to just let it be known to our listeners that we were deeply touched by Fernanda Melchor's unflinching depiction of oppression and injustice. Uh, so as we unpack the themes of like femicide, homophobia, transphobia, and systematic violence, uh, we wanted to bring on someone who not only has a deep understanding of how these terrible social ills impact the world beyond La Matosa, but is also actively working in the sphere of reproductive justice and women's rights to try to bring a sense of justice to these issues. So with that said, uh, we would love to introduce our very first guest uh, on this podcast, uh, the founder and director of the Abortion Postcard Project, Ambie Lopez. The Abortion Postcard Project is a nonprofit organization based in San Antonio that seeks to destigmatize reproductive justice through the creation and proliferation of art. So I think the link between you and uh, Fernanda Melchor uh, is very strong. That's another reason why we wanted to bring you on in that sense. I love the idea of art as destigmatization, uh, but I've talked long enough. So I'll let you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and you can tell our listeners a little more about your organization and what y'all do. Thank you, Patty X. So <laughs> I am Ambie Lopez. I do the Abortion Postcard Project, which destigmatizes abortion by distributing postcards that feature art created by community members. And the back is full of facts about abortion, as well as resources for everyone, including teens and low income people on how to get an abortion. Um, we are in San Antonio, but are we are already expanding to El Paso and have received um interest in other states as well. I'm also the outreach coordinator for Texas Wears Condoms, another nonprofit nonprofit that distributes free condoms to anyone in Texas. And I have uh, my sociology degree focusing in feminism. Excellent, wow. Nice. Yeah. With, with that all said, um, so clearly, if y'all didn't get it uh, beforehand, uh, we, we brought on Ambie because of her knowledge and experience with these uh, real world issues that we see presented in hurricane season. And so, 
for the deep dive discussion. Uh, we would like to have a roundtable conversation about some of the uh, thematic concerns. And I believe Robert and Ezra, y'all were gonna, y'all were gonna, mo- y'all were gonna maybe moderate a little bit, and then uh, let me and Ambie go head to head on these. Yeah, yeah, about. yeah. yeah. Uh, Robert, do you want to start us off with a couple questions? So any discussion for the major themes of hurricane season, we would, we would be remiss to ignore, I guess, the sheer amount of gratuity of violence contained in the book. And so we'd like to argue that Sherman Lamatosa just purely bleeds violence, but we would suggest that violence is not just arbitrary and random, but is specific in terms of the scope and the targets as we witness in hurricane season. And so we would like to theorize that as an academic word for everybody else theorizing this novel, I guess the most... Most of the violence in hurricane season specifically targets and victimizes women. So I guess, Amy, if you could help us build out of this argument, in what ways is violence in hurricane season gender-based and what is the extent of this gender-based violence? Definitely. I think um, one of the parts of the book that affected me most was when um, Brando, along with some um, random uh, people of Lamatosa, picked up a sex worker in their truck um, who they then drugged and took turns raping. Um, Also during this point, uh, Brando is uh, upset about uh, the fact that this woman does uh, pee on his leg, Mm -hmm. of which of course is just her normal bodily function of being drugged and raped. Um, And I'm actually gonna read a part of the book, if you don't mind, that says that. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, Because the way that it is described. I I actually had to put the book down. I was like, wow. Um, he looked down and saw a dark patch appear on the fly of his pants and the hem of his T-shirt. And with a cry of disgust, he fell back against the side door. And for a second, everyone was stunned and completely silent. And then they burst into wild fits of hooting laughter as they pointed at Brando's crotch and the stream of piss still coming from the filthy slut. She pissed on him. Those cunts shouted. She pissed on him while he was fucking her. The bitch, the fucking skank. Nobody stopped Brando when he launched at the woman and punched her hard in the face. They were way too busy laughing. So that part, I had to actually step away from the book because it is just very clear when you talk about violence towards women that women are seen as these objects in mm-hmm. La yeah. Matosa. And afterwards, he they do drop her off on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually gets upset with her for peeing on his leg, despite the fact that of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. It seems like they have no yeah. realization of their own actions, that women aren't entirely people to them. Yeah, they have this fucked up understanding of what women really are you know and they don't even seem as people what you're saying uh oh, man. i guess to add on to that um do you think like you said you have to put the book down do you think a story like this being written and read do you think that has more of an impact to anybody reading the book compared to if it were visualized in a movie or some kind of scene that like if you were to see all that happening in person, like just you, you know, you're not taking the time to read it, you're watching it or listening on the radio about it. Do you think that the message that Meltrod wants to pass on with that particular moment and like the feeling that she wants you to receive can only be done with like a novel like like this to this extent? 
I mean, that's hard to say. I have seen movies like, um, you know, like Boys Don't Cry. I don't know if you're familiar where it's very it's a very hard watch, you know, and it does bring the same kind of like um, the same kind of light to the violence of trans people and women. Um, but this definitely it being a novel. Um, I've never read a book like this, I will say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think- I think it's it's the fact that we go so deep into the characters' psyches, you know. I mean, in that passage that that Ambi just read, I don't think he even, I don't think that uh, Brando even once referred to her as a, a woman. He had called her, you know, a slut or, or a bitch or whatever, but he never even calls her like a woman. And you see d- just how internalized, just the how deep and internalized that kind of misogyny is, and it's so difficult to read something like that because it's not your own thoughts. You don't, you know, these aren't things you agree with. These aren't thoughts you would ever have. And yet you're, you're sitting here forced to uh, imagine this this scene, you know, mm-hmm. and forced to be stuck inside the head of this this vile character. I guess what, I, what I'm really curious is about is when Fernanda started and finished it, she didn't know what the real purpose was, I guess, because everything starts getting mixed in with all these characters. But ultimately, I feel like, yeah, like those moments are the, book, are the part where you put the book down. And it's because it's uh, is it is it resonating too much or is it just too blunt of a reality, you know? And I think that is what maybe she was going for, and she used different voices of different people, not just hers. I think it's absolutely both that it that it's so blunt and that it also resonates because this. I mean, we know that this is unfortunately like violence against women, especially sexual violence, is something that's very been been commonplace and and normalized in the world. And I think part of you you can see that in La Matosa in the same way that this woman uh, had the same almost the same experiences as this young girl Norma, who was also um, taken advantage of and sexually abused. Do you think Ambi? Because um, I know you you work around abortions mostly, and you're very factual with all of this. Do are there a lot of deaths in femicide or like in, in abortions? Like, is there, like, I guess, like, a, there's not, right? There's not a lot of severeness to it. Like, to getting an I abortion? I guess, like, in this, in this setting, it's like backdoor, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you're not going to a clinic. And right. so they have to go through these kind of extremes. But, like, say, laws are getting so restricting now that mm-hmm. who knows what people have to go through to get, I don't know, their own choice made. So, right. So, when abortions are done in a clinic, they are 99.7%, I believe, safe. Um, but of course, getting it done by a witch or anyone else <laughs> <laughs> is much different. And people do die from that. Um, and with the laws happening as of recently, most people um, who most people who are in their reproductive age who identify as women uh, will be about 150 miles away from the nearest abortion clinic in Texas. Wow. In Texas, just strictly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So in Mexico, where this is taking place, mm-hmm. and this is the only source they can go to, is it like is it a necessity there too? Understanding that there are dire like repercussions in Lamatosa for those women, like they don't have a choice either. I suppose like they have to travel distances too to maybe get to this witch. Mm. I'm assuming, like that. Not every town has somebody like that. No, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure they come from all over the place. You know, looking for um, her services, mm-hmm. um, whatever like portion the potion mm-hmm. that she made for like Norma and stuff like that. I mean, that's not the first time she done it. You know, she done it 
dozens of times for everyone, all the sex workers. Mm-hmm. But but I'm glad that you you bring that up that that idea of access because I think that um, even though there's a lot of overt there, yes there's a lot of overt and gratuitous violence depicted toward women in this book, but as we really start to talk about, I think what Fernanda Melchor is trying to interrogate the femicide crisis, we start to also see the kind of du- indirect forms of violence, and I think the fact that these women do not have a healthcare system set up for them, the fact that we know in this book that the hospital that the people who work at the hospital are in mm-hmm. cahoots with the police who are in cahoots with the mafia i'm sorry the narcos um is mm-hmm. just like is another form of, of violence that these women don't have access to any of the health care that they need that they're forced to go mm-hmm. to a um uh I, I guess an alternative medicine practitioner yeah. who has uh questionable um questionable methods yeah mm. do you think there's like a a war against women to just based on abortions, like even in a small town like this in Mexico or in the States or Texas. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably the, that, that might've been the easiest question that we're going to give you. But I meant, but I meant more, <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess like, I guess it's because we're, they're, vic- they're, they're not necessarily victims of being, pre- okay. Cause like the beginning of Norma's chapter, right? The very beginning, some of the first mm-hmm. words in the book for me for her chapter are this other woman, this other lady, I guess that's in her room, talking about how it's a miracle she's pregnant mm-hmm. and how long they tried to get this. And then meanwhile, we we know that through Norma, she was raped or like kind of seduced or groomed by like her, yeah. yeah, her stepfather and got pregnant. And to her, that's not a miracle. And then instead of, I don't know, I don't know if she understood what an abortion was at her age or in that town, but she left to go kill herself. Mm-hmm. And I think that extremity took her to this town and then we find out that a different path has taken place. I'm not sure she loved Louise me or why she stayed really. Um, I, I think the implication is because she had no other choice. Like yeah. that's it. like, of course uh, there was no, like if anyone's concerned about like, did her and Louise me love each other? Um, I'll answer that question for you. Uh, no, they did not. I think it was clearly like a convenience thing. Mm-hmm. Like a Louise me saw his opportunity. Like, like they Louise me saw this woman who was in, in desperate need of help. She was like a pregnant 13 year old girl. And he knew that if he wasn't going to help her, uh, someone else at the park was probably going to take advantage of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did she told Chabella that she was pregnant first, right? Uh, Chabella knew. Chabella yeah. knew. Chabella just knew mm-hmm. off the bat. Yeah, it wasn't until later that Louise me mm-hmm. even, I think, noticed it. Um, man, yeah. that's wild. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot to say about the theme of like violence against uh, women in this book, and we'll definitely, mm-hmm. I think, touch back to it as we kind of yeah. near the end of our conversation. But you want to pivot to maybe talking about uh, the witch and Louise yeah. me a little. Um, so yeah, we'd like to, you know, uh, go back into the central character of the hurricane season. Uh, the witch, uh, the younger, uh, trans person lives in La Matosa, often, uh, has to take one of the grandero or midwife duties of town. Um, this partly causes her murder. The person of the town, the people, I'm sorry, the people of the town talk around about over the witch and ultimately she becomes a victim of unjust violence. So how is transphobic violence either covert or overpresented in the novel? Oh man, uh, I get to take this. Okay, I'll go. I'll go first. Um, I think that 
so much of the the crime that we what we consist of is the crime of killing the witch. Like when we think of the motivation, why what caused Brando to actually kill the witch? I think a lot of it was internalized transphobia because he was not only disgusted at the relationship between Louise me and the witch, but he was disgusted by the witch and uh, the way she lived the way she lived her life, the way what she chose to you know identify as. And it's not just uh, Brando. You see like this kind of internalized um, transphobia in all of the characters. And I would actually, if I could, uh, like to refer to a passage, if you guys don't mind. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure. Uh, here. Give me just one more moment. Okay, this is, this is um, from Munra's chapter, and this is just to kind of give you guys uh, an idea of kind of the commonplace level of, of transphobia that's just embedded into like these, these people's way of thinking. There he goes. Munra suspected that it was the witch herself who cursed him for who cursed him for snubbing her that day, and was and that was the one and only time he'd entered the kitchen in that house. And not because I've had anything to do with that person, but for the reasons I've explained, which is that her lifestyle and appearance disgusted me. But at no point did I ever exhibit any desire to harm that person. I I think that that's that one passage itself is like full of full of tension. Because yeah. on one hand, he's he's saying that they're disgusting and he doesn't like them, but he doesn't have any desire to harm them. But we know that re- truly he was he was an accessory to this crime, and so he is indirectly responsible for this violence. And just the idea that somehow he's been crippled because the witch put a curse on him, even though we know it was because he was driving drunk. Yeah. And how they'll... Hmm. I don't know. What do y'all, what do y'all think? Man, I, I just feel like Moonra's passage there just shows us that, you know, this uh, transphobia, homophobia is just internalized feelings mm-hmm. he has probably about himself from being around all these other men. And the the lifestyle that the park rats have uh, that he's there with, you know, uh, I, I assume he's straight, but I mean, he's been around these men who are sizzling sex traffickers, men and women, you know, so, I mean... I just feel like all the men in this town, and especially Moon, is just confused about like their internal feelings, and mm-hmm. they take it out or they um, they target uh, the witch uh, because they can't express or explain it themselves. What do you think? I totally like one hundred percent agree with you. I feel like they exactly they take out everything on the witch, their feelings, um, especially um, Brando's feelings towards other men. Mm-hmm. Um, Specifically, one one character, um, he feels like, to me, he feels like um, almost, to me, jealous of the witch that they can be so, she can be so open um, mm. while he has so much self-hatred um, mm. regarding um, his feelings yeah. towards men. That's an excellent point, yeah. And that's yeah. a good point. Self-hatred, I think, is like the key right there because I think Brando and Moonra and... Probably leisure. I mean, I think everyone's suffering from self-hatred, which causes that violence. Well, and it, instead of, like, looking inward, all these people just, like, decide to just, like, blame it on, on the witch because there's somebody that's maybe, like, more open and honest about who they are than any of these people. Do you think Melchori gives us uh, the witch as a—I I guess, does that— exp- 
it gives us an explanation justification for the character's transphobia um i'd say no because like through bando you're getting him being kind of treated lowly with other very machismo men around him like Mm -hmm. in the scene that ambi read he was forced to do that you know like he did have like a sense of like he didn't know what to do like he couldn't get hard he he couldn't get in there but he he, it was gross and he but he did it because everybody was in the van with him he had nowhere else to go and I think like everybody else was doing it. He was the last one to go. And so when he did it, like it, it was just, a, it was gross. Like all that stuff happened to him and like everybody was grossed out or they're laughing at him. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just moments like that where he just started to, I don't know, just get confused over time. Like um, I know Amby was talking about a really gross part about the book later or in, in Brando's chapter where he's watching a video and it's a little bit about bestiality and stuff. And just we're getting these, introduction to like sex with brando is not normal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i think when it comes to like men maybe like louise me i think he falls in love with him when he starts singing at the witch's little thing under in the house like he starts getting his uh, his affection towards louise when he's Mm -hmm. singing and then starts fantasizing about him and then essentially just kind of like rapes him but then like one part that i think is very profound when it comes to just like him hating himself is when um you know how, like, there's that relationship between Louise Me and that engineer? Yeah. Okay, so that's pretty close, right? Between them two, they're, like, sneaking off together. Mm-hmm. Louise Me's probably getting money from this guy, and this guy's also promising Louise Me a job, right, that Louise Me tells Mooner about later. Mm-hmm. And what we find out later is that Brando ends up hanging out with this engineer, and then there's that scene where the engineer kind of gets frisky with Brando and asks him to do a sexual act. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, well, Louise Me said that you were into that. And then just the fact that Brandon knew that Lu- that this guy knew what him and Louise Me had done, or mm-hmm. what he did to Louise Me, just upset him. He grew into a violent fit, uh, punched the engineer guy, and then ran off. And then his hatred for Louise Me just grew just that much more because now he feels like what his biggest fear is happening that Louise Me was going to tell everybody what he did to him. Because but he didn't, nobody wanted Brandon didn't want anybody to know that he was into Louise Me or like any other kind of guy. Okay. So I think yeah. You guys don't, do you guys remember that part at all? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I just, I just feel like we got like all off topic from talking about like, like the, like the like, transphobia. Oh, like, I think that's what it like was jealousy. Like all of this I, just kind of like he's. I think transphobia him. and jealousy are different, though. Oh, okay, well, I guess I was just kind of trying to relate it to him being jealous of the relationship, the public relationship between the witch and Louise Me. Yeah, yeah, he expresses that like mm-hmm. a, a number of times, and I think that that's part of like definitely what like. Um, propels the mood as well. Yeah. Hmm. So, I'm trying to think to, uh, about this question. I mean, th- does Melchior give us an explanation or justification for their behavior? A food that I think that I don't think she gives a justification for the character's mm-hmm. like kind of like internalized transphobia. Yeah. But I think that she she tries to give an explanation as to like why it's she tries to at least as as readers maybe like like give us uh, a reason as to maybe why we can help understand maybe why some of these characters feel this way because like what what Ambie said about Brando mm-hmm. that he feels maybe like trapped and he's uh, jealous. Uh, that the witch can is is more authentic to herself, like what Robert said about the jealousy between their relationship. And I think that she tries to explain that it's all coming from a place of hatred and, and mm-hmm. misunderstanding, really. In the most like, and not even like a 
a soft way, in a very vitriolent way, she's explaining that all this transphobia comes from a place of hatred and misunderstanding, but it's all placed within oneself and it's all centered like in oneself and projecting these feelings onto the witch. Yeah. Mm. That's a good point. Now, um, one thing I wanted to also ask, um, so why is it that many of the, ma- the male characters, both like indirectly in the periphery of hurricanes, seem to have particularly virulent uh, homophobic attitude? Oh, yeah. Something I really did enjoy about this book was really getting into the machismo culture mm-hmm. um, and just how the, you know, needing to be like extremely masculine. Um, lots of gender roles are in this book. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I, 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 I'll, I'll, uh, I think that, yeah, the book, so much of the book uh, deals expressly with like, this toxic, this very like toxic masculinity and that toxic um, masculine mindset in that it's in mm-hmm. it's ingrained. It's like diametrically opposed to like the feelings of tenderness that these men secretly maybe might have for each other, especially when we look at Brando and Luis me is that this whole system of being a man's man and taking whatever you want is, is kind of diametrically opposed to the idea of, of two people like being lovers and being cooperative and communal. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think about uh, just going back to the car um, that uh, the car scene. I guess when with the sex trafficker. I mean, um, it's just that I think that scene itself uh, really epitomizes, or it's gives us a imagery and explanation of like what these characters really think about uh, as far as like, how they see others mm-hmm. uh, and themselves and um, how they lack, uh, I guess, the ability to care for someone else other than themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's maybe where, I guess, a lot of issues may come up for some of these men. Because, I mean, I'm just trying to think... And they're so weird. I don't know. Uh, I I don't get. I I guess I don't really understand how someone can think like that. But you know, like be like infatuated with somebody yet also just have so much hatred building up towards them. Uh, well, I mean, it's mainly just like uh, the misunderstanding of themselves, I guess, and then mm-hmm. um, taking it out on other another person violently and almost into like murder, you know, and as it is for that one sex trafficker who, I mean, she gets tossed on the side of the road. She almost dies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just, it's kind of eye opening for me. That, that was one of the, another part along with, uh, Norma scene that was just, was like, wow, man. I was like, I had to think about that one. Oh. And there's just another part about the book that's supposed to be, who is, we could talk about as much as about these topics as we can and get as in depth about them. And like, get factual with it but in reality the book doesn't have a lot of real facets of of, like real stories other than the witch being dead like i said a lot of this is fictionalized Mm -hmm. so what fernanda did was she just pushed every single person's life to the extreme Mm -hmm. if that person was a straight male she made that person's life whatever the worst it could be in lamatosa if it was a trans woman with a superstitious background like being a witch she put that person's life through the most torrenting like cycle of what we would know to be a small little Mexican town mm-hmm. where superstitions are very much real to pe- the people. I would, I would actually, I'd actually have to disagree with you on that one, man. 
I don't feel like she took these things uh, to the max. I feel like all these things are really just a reflection of things happening in the real world that she didn't have to take a self-hating like male's existence and, and push it to the max for Brando. Like that's we 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 already see that in the world, and we don't have to look too far even uh, to see something like that. Yeah, I would definitely say that although this book is fiction, um, the problems in the book are very real. Um, all of these situations um, regarding like Norma being molested, um, regarding the sex worker being drugged and raped, that is something that happens often, more often than we even realize mm -hmm. in not just in Mexico, in the United States, in every country. Um violence against women is worldwide and um although this book is fiction like the the problems are not are not fiction at all and um yeah i yeah. think uh you make bring up a good point i mean even more than uh just that i mean there's also the the role of, like gender roles in the patriarchal system yeah uh, that the book also um has uh that i think adds into the violence against women but did you want to say something about that or yeah. just real quick i just meant like i guess not pushing to the max but putting all those stories together in one thing yeah I guess. Okay. you know like they're not just not one without the other you're getting everybody I in know, one story I, I think i see i think yeah. she would like she took a whole like she didn't necessarily take these to the max but she took these kind of what you would consider these extreme examples of hate and all yeah, and pushed much. them into to one kind of mosaic so that they and can they see how have all that weird babel interlinction you know mm -hmm. like they're all kind of exist with each other There's, you can't separate one without yeah one being infringed upon <laughs> and so yeah Ezra you brought up a, a, a great point and you as well Ambi that these issues are, are real world issues that affect us today and I think that some of the binaries that we see it going the opposite way I think some of the binaries we see in the real world uh, in that are that are uh, reflected in this book are like the gender roles for the men and the women of this town, which is pretty mm -hmm. much, I mean, we, we've been talking so about so many issues like transphobia, homophobia, women's violence, and these are all related to issues uh, with, with gender roles and with kind of like the patriarchal system of this town. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that I'd like to kind of open up this discussion question about how does like gender and traditional gender roles uh, affect the citizens of like Lamatosa. How does it affect? How does that determine one's situation in life? You know. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's sad because I mean I think uh, they're born into the role, uh, and it, almost. I mean, the, if you're born a, a woman, you're going to be working. Apparently, it's it's either really, yeah, the choice <laughs> yeah. of of working inside and being like a like a. Like a housewife, like a housewife or, mm -hmm. or literally going to the clubs to become like a, a prostitute. Yeah, I we've only seen a few people who have like a normal job, and that's just because their family was working it mm -hmm. or owns the the shop or something like that. Um, what do you what do you think, Amy? Definitely, and I will say that um, since I do have like a lot of knowledge in like feminism, that there is not a lot of sisterhood in La Matosa. Mm -hmm. Like we mentioned before, Shabella um, pretty much helps girls get se sex trafficked. Yeah. Um, and although she does seem caring towards... Uh, Norma? Norma, yes, sorry. Mm -hmm. Norma, at first, um, like Patty said, it could just be like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like, mm -hmm. you don't know exactly 
why she's doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even with um, with Norma regarding um, uh, Pepe, mm-hmm. um, she yeah. does not tell her mother. There is no sense of um, her mother believing her and defending her. It's no. more of she's worried that um, will her mother see her as competition or see her as trying to take her man or something? Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. there is no sisterhood at all in La Matosa. The women are not um, they're not like fighting together at all. They they take on the majority of the responsibility in the mm-hmm. town. It feels like it seems mm-hmm. like the men um, are really kind of doing whatever they want. Just cod- they're <laughs> yeah. like coddled like grandma, like grandma's little Luis me. They're like yeah. coddled and mm-hmm. it just gives them an excuse to yeah go around and debauch and just do drugs, literally just sit around in a park and do drugs. Like that's what they do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I forgot about that scene with, well, just that dynamic between Norma's uh, mother and her. I mean, man, that was, uh, that I think is a really good uh, example of the gender roles patriarchal system. Cause I mean, she loses her school, she loses her family all in her whole life uh, because she can't go to other women to find any kind of sense of community. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And even when Chabella seems like, um, someone who is finally helpful, a female who is helpful towards her, um, we still can't even be sure if she is being helpful because we do know that she has this kind of um, connections with people mm-hmm. of who are part of like the... The narcos. The narcos and yeah, all that. Yeah, the sex traffickers. Yeah. yeah, you can tell, I think, in the book, I think Norma is like hesitant to trust her, mm-hmm. uh, but ends up going along with her. Well, like, mm. I guess he, even with Louise, me, she was pretty much giving herself to him. I'm not sure if that's just like a fragment of her mind, thinking of Pepe too, because we get to witness how she's groomed almost from the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just kind of like through her eyes, it's like she kind of accepted it all, yet once it came down to whether or not it was about her and her mother, or the relationship between her and her mother, she decided to just run away from it all. So she didn't want to mm-hmm. face her mom knowing what was going, what was happening with her, which is ultimately... Well, I, I think it's also because she like blamed herself too, instead of like, you know, acknowledging like we wouldn't acknowledge we all all know like Pepe is like a, you know, a scumbag and he is like clearly like a predator, but in her mind she doesn't think of him as a predator. She thinks she's the person uh, that is that has done, you know, something wrong. And that's going I think going back around to Ambie's point about how the women in this town seem to take a lot of responsibility. You know, she even takes responsibility for things that are, that are not her own. She's been conditioned to think that this is somehow that this man, uh, grown man taking advantage of a 13 year old girl is somehow like her fault, you know? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this whole book just shows you examples of men manipulating the women. I mean, into this role that they want them in. Mm-hmm. Um, from it being Pepe with, uh, I guess he he's Pepe also had like he was not just manipulating Norma but Norma's mother too. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So I mean, Norma really felt I think alone, uh, and had no one to turn mm-hmm. to. Even her own mother probably she didn't feel like she could confide her because I I think Pepe had already manipulated her to not believe Norma or to uh, I guess uh, just kind of wave it away. You mm-hmm. know whatever uh, she wanted to talk about yeah i think mm. the the gender roles in this town the 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 by the gender binaries are are so so strong it's almost like this this um 
ma- magnetic magnetic pull you know where will you see like where right where the the genders like the responsibilities the duties and th- the things where, right, right where each gender falls along and you said that you really enjoyed reading about like the machismoism in the novel ambi so like did you find the part interesting where when you're learning about Luis's father manolo how like when he was arrested and sick and like imprisoned that like his grandmother was constantly spending her money to go visit him and buy him things there and even like when Luis me came to stay with him she was the grandmother was choosing Luis me's i guess existence in the house more than yesenia and like we saw even like how yesenia was forced to work also and still see how you like Luis me just has a shining light from her grandmother Right. So it definitely the book does show and this is a problem in a lot of cultures where they really do pick the men over the mm-hmm. women, you know, the mm-hmm. women, they cook and clean and work and the men, um, they're just they like them better. They treat them better. Um, the men, as we mentioned multiple times, like they have a real lack of responsibility in the town. But it also feels like there is no future in La Matosa. Like there isn't much to become um, and I think the women exactly. definitely feel that, that what else are they to do other than be sex workers? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there is no like, it's, it feels when reading the book, like there is no escape from their town. Yeah. Um, also like just going to like the economics of it, like, you know, when you're in such severe poverty as they are, um, it's not so simple as like just moving you know mm-hmm. going to yeah. another town starting a life somewhere like it feels like they are really truly like stuck in these gender roles in this like culture that they like can't get out of it's like norma too she left her town and where she ended up was nowhere near better she ended up exactly potentially dying there exactly i think yeah i mean that itself is another message i think much is um offering us because mm-hmm. you know you try to escape uh and if you if you don't have access to help or resources, you know, I mean, you can end end up in even a worse situation because, I mean, there's threats everywhere. Man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't even know. Where the witch got murdered was to mm-hmm. find the funds for Louise and Brandon to escape. Yeah. And I think yeah. Louise was going to use that money for Norma too, right? They yeah. were just going to mm-hmm. leave. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, they resulted in murder and then potentially... That's what we get to read about. Yeah, I mean, these people really have no option. You know, look what you were saying, Ambi. Uh, that's a really good point. I think... I think it's wild because, like, <laughs> even with the machismo thing, it's just so powerful because, like, Munra, like we said, was, like, some powerful guy. Right? Like, he was, like, suave and... He used Chabella to be Rico Suave before yeah. his accident. And then at the end of his chapter, like, yeah, it's his, we find out that, like, Chabella left him for, like, potentially another dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even that's a hierarchy, too, you know. Mm-hmm. And the engineer taking advantage of Louise me because he was uh, shown to be rich. He had gold. He, he was rich. He was he was rich. He was like white. He was white collar. He was a white collar worker. I think it's important mm-hmm. they make that distinction. He wasn't a guy in the oil fields. He was like a white collar worker that was looking to like keep Louise me maybe as like his houseboy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I understood it as. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit. We should probably. Um, talk about the concept of intersectionality yeah uh it's a intersectionality is an analytical framework uh it takes uh an account people's social economic racial gender and political identities in order to understand the complexity of prejudice they face now without trying the reductivist um 
because Patty thinks intersectionality is uh, of terminate importance. Uh, intersectionality is a framework essentially asserts the different forms of bigotry, like homophobia, transphobia, gendered violence, and um, they don't exist ind- independently. And these often uh, in, ju- in these injustices uh, often inform one another and create a complex matrices of oppression. So. On that topic of intersectionality, how do the different forms of oppression, such as homophobia, gender violence, intersect with each other? Well, I'd like to start this off. I think, Rabu, you gave a good example of talking about how Melchor took all these all these 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 things like transphobia, homophobia, these characters who maybe embody this like to to a maximum maximal degree and stuck them inside this novel. And I think that you really what she brings to light through Hurricane Season is the way in which these forces interact with each other, the way in which you see that Brando's transphobia is like ingrained with his with his homophobia, which is in, also ingrained in his hatred of himself. You know, and you see that all of these are, are, are connected to each other in just like a, a way that's impossible to, to detangle. Mm-hmm. I know what do you all feel. Definitely. And the way that gender violence and the trans violence all intersect uh, um, is that they're just all oppressed communities that have mm-hmm. like specific barriers. And mm. these communities are seen as, you know, abnormal or like second class. And like, for instance, Brando, it's to me, it feels like he he just wants to be what he considers to be normal, you know, mm-hmm. to want like women to enjoy women you know Mm -hmm. he just wants so much to be just like a quote unquote like normal person not an abnormal person like um someone who is queer Mm -hmm. you know and so it's obviously very easy to pick on the person who is the odd one out uh, which is why these communities face so much like oppression Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of examples of that i think when uh i think Brando's worried that they're gonna fi- the park rats are gonna find out about his relationship with Louis Me, mm-hmm. and then uh, they torment him. Man. And well, uh, yeah, that's what I was saying yeah. earlier. Like we yeah. find that out. Well, Lu- Brando thinks that the uh, Louis Me told the engineer first because the mm-hmm. engineer makes a move on him in the truck. Yeah, yeah. and that's why he's like he beats him up because he's like he did. He spoke. He said. It. He's now everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's when he starts getting outraged. Yeah. But part of that, really quick, I have a cool quote from Fernanda basing on, like, how Ambie was saying how it's just like a... Okay, I'm just going to say, you guys ready? Yeah. So Fernanda says, Machista culture is mixed with homophobia by saying things like, she said, it's strange that even a straight man fucks a man and it's not gay. Only the one taking it is. Mm-hmm. And that they're so manly they can fuck a man. And that's how Fernanda wants these people to be described, you know? Yeah. That they're they're just so manly that to them it's not they're not queer at all. Like they're mm-hmm. just dominating another guy doing what they want. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that, that um, to those, to those guys, like that you see it in, you see that mindset alive in Brando that their, their sexuality is like intertwined with these, this weird kind of um, sense of dominance, you know, this like, and, it, and it's just like, it, it's impossible to, to separate the two. Like it's just hard ingrained, into his like sexuality, the idea that you have to dominate someone to, to be a man or that it's, you have to be, even when you're having like sex, you have to be masculine and you have to be the one like giving, you know? I think like mm. I'm describing like in the, in the culture of America, like 
it's hard for people like that too. But in like Lamatosa, it feels like there's just more violence involved, I guess. And and I'm pretty sure that yeah. happens not just in like Mexico. That potentially could be happening in Germany too, mm-hmm. which are reasons why this book is popular. Femicide and just stuff like that. And I guess, I mean, every there's no haven anywhere this, really. Yeah. There, right? There's not like yeah. a what? What is where? What could people do to shine a better light on a sense of acceptance? I guess if there is like a questionable idea of say somebody wanting to be open but not feel like they're going to be a victim of just like a mental abuse or physical abuse. It's just like a sense of community. Open about what? I guess like if they wanted to come out, you know, and like their community is just so oppressing towards that. Mm -hmm. What, or what kind of avenues do people take? Like, is it just that harsh sometimes? Like, I I don't know. Absolutely. Especially in a town like, La Matosa, where I mean, the only out person is the witch. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And and they literally do not even give her a name. Um, They misgender her constantly. Um, She's, I mean, she's literally called the witch. (laughs) People are scared of her. Um, And this is how it is in a lot of like towns like that, where there's no queer community. You know, there is Mm -hmm. no. LGBTQ rights at all. Um, mm-hmm. You're the outcast. You get blamed for everything. And even the people who come and have sex with you will swear to God that they aren't gay, that they have no feelings towards, you know, this or that. Um, and that, um, you know, you're just kind of like, um, I guess, like a sexual like object. There mm-hmm. is no like, when there's no community for LGBTQ people, they just get the blame put on them mm-hmm. for for everything it seems yeah like. i mean they're i mean they're attacked either you know physically by murder or you know uh they're hated uh and i mean when the witch goes into anywhere i mean uh to go get food i think she she gets called at and screamed at and people run away from her i mean i think it's just uh I think Melchor used uh, that to kind of give us a little bit of light on how people without any community feel, especially if they're LGBT. I like the idea, especially that y'all are talking about community too, because I I feel like getting going back to a question about about intersectionality. I feel like a lot of these issues exist because of those like not really. Uh, a sense a strong sense of, of community there's kind of like this like a crab mentality where everyone's trying to to bring each other down mm, and so point. relating this to to intersectionality you see the different you see how somebody's prejudices is prejudices are colored by these different kind of intersecting um things like homophobia or transphobia or the lack of opportunities or internalized self-hate mm-hmm. and it all just results in a place that feels like a, a hole that's just devoid of any kind of any kind of community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the characters are just uh, at each other, you know, mm-hmm. going at each other, but none of them are there to help one another. They, they're all just trying to to get something out of somebody else, or they don't really care, you know. Except the only thing I I don't get is. I mean, if that's true, what mm-hmm. what is Louise me trying to get out of Norma? Because well, you. That's, I think he's just trying to, I think, just innocence, I guess. I just think that maybe for once, maybe he really does see something pure. Maybe he does have some kind of foresight 
that other people don't in La Matosa. Like maybe when he saw Norma, everybody else is seeing her as prey and we get to witness through his perspective how he just kind of wants to help her. That's yeah. that's that's what I thought too. I thought as well that maybe like the 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 true maybe one of the the true um, issues of this novel that that Melchor is trying to point at is that the characters the, a character like Luis me even if he's like a drug addled kind of dreamer stoner loser whatever that he does have a moment of grace you know he wants to help mm-hmm. this young girl that he knows is in a crisis um, but it's about how this town can't let that can't let that goodness exist mm. can't let that good can't let this mm-hmm. person help another person that there are forces outside of these people's control that will try to destroy this this pure-hearted attempt to just help another person and ultimately and, like louis me just kind of goes off the rails well we don't really know what happens to him oh, i mean i know i know what i mean i have my own interpretation but i oh, think that, like the pure end i meant like yeah. just look at the witch and brando and like that mm-hmm. their whole situation it just became so blood-filled, I feel well, like. Well, I think it was also because, like, it, it just happened in, like, a, a moment of misunderstanding. And mm-hmm. it was also Brando really pushing, pushing Luis me to do this as well, too, you know, egging mm-hmm. him on and whispering in his ear about the money or she did you dirty or something It's also like wild, that. too, that, like, Brando went after Luis, not after her, but, like, had him be an accomplice even after he had so much hatred building up. Towards mm. Louise Me too, like he still yeah. used Louise Me as a as a tool to for him to escape because he was going to kill Louise Me once he got the money and was out of town. Yeah, like I think that's also a sense of that machismo just factor being built mm-hmm. in too, just like using it yeah. for their own potential, their own selfishness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the intersectionality. Even though uh, he like loved him or had some kind of like he was always infatuated like when Louise Me would sing. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. and the jealousy like where's that coming from? But he potentially wants to kill him too. It's mm-hmm. just. A whirlwind, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Brando's, I think, a good example that embodies all of uh, intersectionality, I think. Yeah, the, he embodies a lot of those concepts because you mm-hmm. see um, you see all these different things in him, all these different prejudices in the way they interact. Mm-hmm. He also talks about, like, him, what would he would have to do to survive somewhere else, like mm-hmm. get a small job. He's talking about being normal, saving money. But like even that is an idle dream for him also. You know? I had a question for Amby. Amby, what do you how do you interpret Brando? Like uh what does he represent? What what concepts do you think? I mean there, there's lots to unpack there. That's a loaded question we've been talking about. I wanna hear what you had to say about it. Um Brando is terrifying. <laughs> um Yeah. Um I think he really shows that's a big question. I know, um, I know I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess, no. It's just the lack of compassion. Mm. Just like, I'm trying to think. So he's like a perpetrator. I mean, he's not, there's no, there's no reason we should ever feel like he is a victim of anything, maybe. Or is he, in a sense, like, is, is he, how we were talking about earlier, culpable of his actions, like committing the murder and doing what he does to other people? Or is he just kind of um, part of the, like, the cyclical environment of La Matosa? I feel like he is. Um, I know we had mentioned earlier that he's like maybe a bit of a sociopath. And I honestly yeah. would actually agree with that a little bit, even though um, he does have feelings um, for one of the characters. I feel mm-hmm. like it's 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 small and it's mainly I think it's also very sexual yeah. um which is kind of like his own like 
his own self needs like his yeah. own like satisfaction mm-hmm. um well it is a lot of his drive like as he's watching the video he's he tries to like rip like rec- like what is it recreate some scenes like that like with the little boy like towards the end when he wants to abduct that kid that's when he's starting to really come back to that repressed memory of like that snippet from that bestiality video mm-hmm. and i feel like there was a resemblance and that's why he re- like kind of wanted to abduct and then thank god that the cops came right then and there and then yeah the story continues but i just feel like i don't know i guess he was raised in a christian home like but him and his mother would always argue and he always felt like his mother was too religious thought that it was all just a joke and kind of just as he grew up like let go over hand and became a park rat and doing all Mm -hmm. these drugs and i really do think that that video played a bigger role because as he was discovering his sexuality it was never normal you know like it's the video then it's the relationship with that older woman who was married Mm -hmm. and then yeah then it becomes then we find out louise me's there and then Yeah. yeah so that was um going back to what the question you asked me about brando that was something i thought about many times while reading is just like how did this happen like how did he become this way like the yeah the scene with the sex worker i mean to you know drug someone and when they pee on you too like he actually punched her in the face yeah no, um, he was beating her it yeah. was i just one of the reasons why i had to stop reading because i couldn't believe like because people like Brando do exist, you know? There yeah. are people like that. Yeah. And I was wondering, I was like, I need a whole backstory on him because I don't understand how he got to that point mm-hmm. of, like, absolute violence and anger and hatred. Yeah. And and that was so, when you asked me, it kind of took me back because I was like, I that was something that I thought so many times while reading is, like, how did he... How did he become this way? Yeah. You know, from his um I feel like there's more to his backstory than than we were shown because mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I feel like you know, like the majority of people like although have some like um bigotry and tendencies are not to the extreme extents of Brando in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a good point, I think. Um and maybe mature meant for this, but when I was reading it, and especially Brando's, I mean, I thought the same thing. I was like, how does someone like this happen? But we are never given a good explanation on anyone's actions. No. We, we're, they're just, for the book, I mean, they're just stating it in vulgarly. I mean, they're stating what, what's happening, and it's more of just like, this has happened. It's a kind of objective viewpoint. Um, and we, I think that's... Uh, I mean, we for these people in real life too. I mean, we don't know the people around us. We only know glimpses of people, and you know, we have these same questions we have for Brando, like trying to understand how he's become so violent. We have those same questions for the criminals in our, in our real life, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that have committed these same crimes. You know, that makes me think of it. it's like, oh, and how did they get there? You know, uh, was it? Are they a victim of their society? Did they do it themselves? You know, um, did they choose this? You know, uh, and for Brando, I think we see it's a mix of both. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I, I think he he makes the choice to be violent and have hatred, and to live and make actions based off of hatred, and uh, everything along with the homophobia and transphobia. But there's also 
the machismo culture from the park rats that have influenced him and it's, it's all happening at the same time you know mm-hmm. so it's hard to say you know are, th- are these people you know you you combine that all of that with like the lack of economic opportunities the lack yeah. of any kind of like model for success in this community yeah. or the only model for success is you you either leave your family and go work in the oil fields or whatever which is mm-hmm. not a model for success in that community because you leave it yeah. or you become a narco and and that's it and i think it's a lot of it's a lot of those things in Brando's story. A lot of the, it's a lot of the story is sex driven too, and Brando's mm-hmm. story is very much sex driven. We witness that his, like I said, his sexual encounters aren't normal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not very romantic. They're cruel. They're twisted. So it's, reading it is disgusting. Yeah, it's just, and he's being manipulated in some senses too. And then it's like weird, na- it's like that natural environment, whatever Lamatos is, is grooming him without him even knowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's yeah. purely what we witness is, like, how these seeds are planted in this kid's mind. And then as he's also festering in the environment of those things happening publicly and around him with his, the people he assumes are just, like, his friends, I guess, or even, like, protectors like Moonra, somebody who's an older person, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that even then, like, they still succumb to just being numb yeah. and violent with not even thinking about their past, their future. Nothing else matters but that moment of, uh, pleasing themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And with Brando, it's also like, like um, maybe his upbringing, but also as you said, like um, his surroundings. There's definitely like a lack of morality um, in La Matosa, and you know he when he did um, rape that sex worker. I mean, there were other people in the truck with him, you know. And yeah. I even in the passage I read um, when he punched her. Um, they, they it said that they, everyone they was chill. too busy laughing. Yeah. yeah, you know, like this is this is completely normal. There is no sense of um, law mm-hmm. or like right and wrong. The like <laughs> absence of justice or like absolutely rights or accountability. You know, and yeah, I think what we were saying about earlier. when that happens, when you have a place that's you don't get in trouble for doing horrendous crimes, um, and people seem to just kind of do what they want. Um, I think it kind of sp- actually spirals out of control, right? Mm, you yeah. do get people like, like Brando. Yeah, mm. that's a lot to to digest. We've yeah. been going quite a bit about intersectionality. <laughs> Brando. Brando's a lot to unpack. You can really talk about him for a long time. And I think uh, I think people we're so drawn to his chapter because we we see this kind of like if you turn on Univision, you know, you see guys like Brando in the news every single day and all these members of gang violence who are either the victims or the perpetrators you know you think to themselves this could have been a young man like brando you know yeah you know or a young woman like oh, like normal ex- ex- yes i just remembered something uh it's called uh the soft white underbelly oh, i've seen that show. uh it's on or youtube, YouTube yeah. um and this guy interviews um prostitutes, gang members, uh, all these people who, uh, drug addicts, and he gives them a voice, you know, and an mm. understanding of how they got there. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it's very hard to watch, mm-hmm. uh, to watch these videos, but if you're, if I think this book makes you start thinking about these questions or like how people get there and what's their story, you know, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, there's, it's pretty hard to watch and listen to, but uh, definitely something I recommend. No, uh, those are cool because, like, when they when they are getting interviewed, they just constantly talk, and their subjects yeah. always changing because mm-hmm. they've had such harsh lives. Yeah, and so their train of thought is always disconnecting, reconnecting. 
mm-hmm. you're just so infatuated that you just can't stop watching. Like you're starting to understand, but then you don't know what you're understanding. And that's pretty much what hurricane season feels like as you yeah. read it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very a lot of similarities. Um, something I recommend. Well, uh, as we so as we kind of um, get close to the end of the discussion, we want to speak to the we want to address one last topic uh, with you guys. At least one of the last like one of the like social political thematic topics. Uh, the idea that silence, uh, namely silencing other stories or trying to bury truths using intimidation or coercion to force compliance, is another form of violence. Um, so, how is the idea that silence? Um, I'm sorry. How is the idea that silence is equated with another form of violence? represented in hurricane season how do y'all think i would say to me the first thing would be the fact that the witch has no voice no Mm -hmm. name and is not even given a chapter in the book Mm -hmm. um we're just given a lot of stories um gossip um what the townspeople think of her um but she herself has no voice in the book no i think that that's that's so a great point. I think that's something that Melchor was trying to really get at is that Louis, that not only the witch, but also Louise me who um, we would consider maybe like the victims of these crimes, a witch definitely. And Louise me maybe like an indirect victim uh, because he has a sympathy that they're not given a voice or an opportunity to tell their story. And we can't get into their heads mm-hmm. the way we can get into somebody like Munra's head or Chabella's head or, or Brando's head who we recognize as, as victimizers, mm-hmm. you know. and I actually have um, a passage uh, from Hurricane Season from the book that kind of talks about the the silence as a form of, of violence. It, I okay. think it encompasses that pain. Let's hear it. <clears throat> they mustn't go inside the witch's house. Probably they mustn't pass or peek through the yawning holes that now mark its walls. A look warning them to not let their children go looking for that treasure, not to dream of going down there with their friends to rummage through those tumble-down rooms, or to see who's got the balls to enter the room upstairs at the back and touch the stain left by the old witch's corpse on the filthy mattress. To tell their children how the others have run screaming from that place, faint from the stench that lingers inside, terror-stricken by the vision of a shadow that peels itself off the walls and chases you out there. To respect the dead silence of that house. The pain of that miserable soul who once lived there. That's what the woman in town say. There is no treasure in there. No gold or silver or diamonds. Or anything more than a searing pain that refuses to go away. Hmm. I think that pain and that passage embodies the kind of silence as violence and that searing pain from the witch not only not being able to tell her story, but also the women of Lamatosa who are trapped into this brutal system where they don't have any autonomy over their bodies or their futures. And mm-hmm. all they can do is is sit with that ceiling pain. And I think the witch's house, as it as it is um, collapsing on itself, is kind of a, a very physical reminder of that rot. Hmm. Like the very last chapter too, and it's like the after everybody's chapters are kind of concluded, mm-hmm. you get that story with the old man. He's like the cremator of that. I don't know where he's from. Yeah, at the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then like you get those young kids talking about how like why is he talking to them and like easing them into their death, and he just has like a, a sense of silent respect towards them. Yeah, that he tries to practice and pass on to these the youth there, but I guess to him it's just 
I guess that's a finalization of knowing that this is happening everywhere. Because the bodies, I think you told me that you think it's the bodies of the people in, in the story, but I yeah. think they're just strangers. I have a whole, I have a whole theory about that. Yeah, I, I thought it was the characters that we knew. I mean, I thought they ended up in that hole. Uh, they, that they give. They, they, the long, I guess to shorten it, uh, they give, I think that they give key details of each of the bodies that's described, the three bodies, and I think that the key details of the bodies correspond to key details given of each of the major characters. Uh, that is namely um, Louise, me, Norma, and the witch. Mm-hmm. But yeah. once again, it's open, it's open to interpretation, and I don't want. Yeah people to think that like that's the only way to interpret it because i think that it's also a comment on the universality uh, of this violence the fact that it's so widespread and that this putting these people to rest feels like this um finally giving them a a sense of peace Mm. and going back to the like silence um is violence um part yeah just also that the violence in the town is just completely ignored Mm -hmm. like it's never brought to attention that it is a problem um and that's something that also like in real life like when you hear you know a friend make um a very like inappropriate comment towards you know a woman it makes her uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and you don't say anything um you know that encourages violence towards women Mm -hmm. you know that encourages um all the things that women go through just like in la matosa um when you see these things happening and you stay silent and you don't try to help or do anything um, because it's, you know, maybe you think it's like, oh, it's none of my business mm-hmm. or this or that. But that the silence does equal the violence that women and the LGBTQ community face mm-hmm. in in life. Yeah, I mean, if you witness it, I mean, it becomes your business. And I think it takes a lot of bravery to like stand up to someone that's talking like that i mean because I'm, I'm sure they're not going to be friendly about it uh but man i mean yeah i i, I agree with you 100 percent um but i think that passage uh going back to the passage though mm-hmm. that you read um it gives us a i think a little bit insight uh on like the witch uh mm-hmm. itself uh though we never hear from her i mean we know like the lingering effect mm-hmm. she has and i think that's um the way you describe it, um, I think in the very last sentence, uh, it just it doesn't go away. The searing pain, yeah, yeah, the searing pain doesn't go away. I think that's uh, the that's the witch, man. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, if she had to leave a lasting effect, you know, that's what she probably wanted. Yeah. Um, I think that. Uh, do we want to talk about more? Amber, you still, Amber, you can join us for this one too. Do you want to talk about the more like literary? I just had like one point on kind of like the literary stuff of the book. Do we want oh, to talk yeah. about that? Sure. Yeah, sure, just man. talking about the the torrent of the language, um, which is namely to say like the unignorable and daunting uh, blocks of the text that that pretty much uh, occupy every single page. Um, and I just want to meditate on how the style of the novel, which is those giant blocks of text. The run-on sentences, the ever-shifting timeline, and the changing narrators uh, inform the tone of the story. And I want to take a moment to maybe discuss how that that style, that really frenetic style, uh, metatextually evokes the sensations of anxiety that are reflected in the thoughts of our characters. I think mm-hmm. you I had mean, a great take on this. You had a great take, Robert. You want to hit really us with quick, it? Really quick, I'd want to see if maybe Ambie could 
maybe elaborate on? Oh, yeah. Like, up to the point to where when you had to stop, were you on a pretty good flow of reading the novel? Like, did you feel like there was other parts that you wanted to stop? Maybe you, like, if there's something unsettling, you just kind of went through with it until you reached a part of Brando and the sex worker in the van, and like, you finally put it down, but not because you were resting and just, like, pausing to read. You just kind of, like, you stopped. But up to that point, did you did you pause, like, briefly, or did you feel like the book was pushing you to keep reading? I felt like the book did um, keep me, um, push me to keep reading, definitely. I think the only times that I did pause was to just be in shock of what I was reading. Um, definitely, yes. Yeah, because I, mm. I, like, I think it's, that's one of the cool things about the book, I think, mm. is just, like, it forces you to keep reading. I guess until your breaking point. <laughs> until you try to, until you find it forces you to keep reading until you find like the next end of the sentence. <laughs> Except, yeah. There are like 10 sentences in this whole book. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, oh, I was curious, yeah. like when you said like you finally put it down, I was like, yeah, that's, there's definitely harshnesses and barriers to overcome within reading something this uh, detailed, you mm-hmm. know, and, and just very, um, the language, like I said, you, you can pick up the book and open to any page and you're just going to read a cuss word or like some kind of act of violence, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's unavoidable. When you, I know someone mentioned like rubbernecking um, during like a car accident and that's definitely yeah. what it felt like is, you know, it's so violent and it's gory and there's a lot of cuss words and it feels like, but you can't put it down because it's just so much going on. And it's so where they're living and what they're going through is so awful that you actually can't put it down because mm. you want to know what happens, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. I think uh, one of the things, one of the chapters, I think the best uh, best example for it mm-hmm. would probably be for me is like Norma's chapter. Yeah, I think uh, that one does a great job of, man, of really embodying the, that frantic style. Yeah, man, it was. Um, I'm glad I. I think it was like when I was reading it, I was like in my room. It was like eleven. And I got to Norma's chapter and I read like the first page and then I just couldn't stop because the way she wrote, it was like someone was like shaking me and like yeah. telling you the story. And then it was like this horrible story happening to this girl. And it's not like you can just like put the book down and put her story away. You have mm-hmm. to listen to it and, and hear what she's gone through. Mm-hmm. And it's, but also the writing, it was, it was weird but also great. It was just like, it starts off in the hospital and she's just telling you about her life and her story. And then it goes into it. It kind of, it's a ramble. It's a run on sentences and everything. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's going to make sense or come back to like the point. Uh, but it does. And it does it so beautifully. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was the worst chapter and the best chapter. <laughs> I know? think that it, that's that I thought I, I think it's great that you brought up the idea that she ends up circling back to where you were with that in context. Cause I think that idea of planning you in a spot and then giving you the context and circling back again, I think that idea kind of metatextually evokes the idea of like that you're in this twisting hurricane and like, you don't know where you are. And so you have to like look around, you know, mm-hmm. and same and same thing with like the, the writing style too, just the way it's intense and the run on sentences. It just feels like you're in this, absolute downpour of, of rain it's it's raining blood it's raining blood yeah yeah, yeah. Honestly. what did you guys uh think about the end the last chapter of the book oh. yeah like i said i i had a different interpretation because what could, was your interpretation that like uh murders like that happen all the time but at the end of the day like there was this one older generation this older man that looked 
that curated death more differently than some of the people who are just like younger or just living in a town with no remorse or no sympathy towards others, the dead. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was like a soft spell. But then, like I said, I thought <clears throat> it was other people. So I think it was just like a shock factor that we just read a whole story, a compilation of like a turn of events for a gruesome murder. And yet here's another set of murder people that it's just mm-hmm. the same, it's the same outcome. They end, they end I, up in the same place, you know, but I, I read the ending with a little bit of kind of like cynicism because like, it's a little strange that like the, that the grandfather, she calls him the grandfather too. It, it, I just kind of read it with this kind of like biting kind of like bitterness that it's like kind of ironic that the grandfather only shows up after everyone's dead, you know, mm-hmm. and he just buries the bodies. Like what, like that's like, like that there's like, that it's just like a, maybe like an inconvenience for this person to try to help before that it's easier for the grandfather to just resign themselves to being this silent old man who buries the bodies rather than somebody who tries to like intervene. Yeah. Well, that's how I was confused. That, like, I, I, yeah. I don't think, what, that's what I'm saying. I don't know if it was the family because I don't know mm-hmm. who's the grandfather to whom he was. You know? Yeah. I, I just think it's, it's more like, like metaphorical you know but the idea that the uh, that the 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 guys who can actually help like the grandfather aren't really going to come in until the damage they don't show up until the damage is already done i don't know do you have any thoughts i guess just um i also um thought like the three bodies were the um the three characters yeah and just to me felt like wow like so many so many stories so many like different so many stories and this is how it ended you know mm-hmm. like they've all they've all just passed away like this is how it ended especially like for norma mm-hmm. um for her to go from one bad situation to another to being dead and she was what 13 years old mm-hmm. yeah um it was just kind of like i i couldn't see how the book could have ended any other way mm-hmm. but it was just like wow like i don't know like that's it. <laughs> I, I think it had to end that way because, I mean, through the whole book, there is the absence of justice that we've mentioned. And really the only justice that we should have happened is like, these people need to die for these crimes. I mean, for this violence that they've, they're, you know, torch the flames of, or they, they are the violence or, you know, they're breeding this culture, you know, I mean, there's, once you get to Lamatosa, it it's a hole, like you guys were saying, and mm-hmm. the the only way out apparently is by death. You know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Or I just ahead. think it's so tragic that the book starts off without any kind of like, like, like so we can spoil it by saying we know who the the witch is murdered, mm-hmm. but and you read all about this and at the end of the book, people are dead. More people are dead. Yeah. And I think that's just a more harsh ending than just finding out who did kill the witch. You yeah. Know? I think mm-hmm. that's a just a part of Fernanda's skill at writing that makes the story more profound, you know. I, I oh god, oh yeah. So I was gonna say, I think there's some underlining uh, messages or, or themes that I understood from mm-hmm. the ending of the book. Um, the grandfather being like the older generation, mm-hmm. I think sees like the failure of of like his parenting, I mean his culture, and he's sending him to rest but then he also sees that uh the storm come in uh on the land 
And it's like, I, I, don't know, I was just thinking about it. And I thought about how I think that maybe metaphor, it's like, you know, I, my my kids, my family, my uh, offspring has failed. But here's in the season mm-hmm. just starting over and there's a whole another hurricane of a yeah. mess coming. You know, it's like... I- how do you yeah. fix it? I, I will say, even though I I felt, even though I, I read the the ending with like a little bit of of cynicism, the idea that the the males, you know, the grandfather, like the males that can actually change things, they don't show up until the very end. Um, I also felt that like that at the, at the very end of the novel, for what it's worth, um, these three characters, whether they're the characters we know or three new bodies, they're finally treated with like the dignity that they deserve, and that's maybe the only moment in the novel when they're finally being buried and put to rest in this kind of mm. ritual of respect is that they're given any kind of the, the kind of respect that they should have had in, in real life. I feel. Hmm. Although That's I do th- believe that he refers to the witch as a man. Oh, so even yeah, then okay. there's no respect for the trans person of the novel. Yeah. I feel um, like that. I mean, that whole culture just doesn't have an understanding of what, a trans woman is Ex- yeah you know? there there I is mean, no absent of no knowledge ignorance, you know i mean yeah i mean it's just something unnatural to them you know? and so man i think that was so heavy we've covered so much um was there anything else we we want to just go on the free dive was there anything else have, that we wanted to address i have something i yeah. have a little something too but i want you to go yeah. first so through this discussing it and getting ready for the, the recording here yeah. i thought of something else i haven't really thought of before which is um a home how do you define a home you know for for someone mm-hmm. uh like these people in, in the book so louise me i think uh he has his shack we'll use him as an example his casita. His casita. <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah, it's like a wooden door dude. exactly Light bulb. and you know, he also carries that with him everywhere. I feel like when you see him around town or the way he's described, I mean, he just looks like a shack with like a wooden door. You know, it's like these people carry their, their home with them. And I think like Moonra is, uh, he's handicapped and then his home is also handicapped. I mean, mm-hmm. Chabella is leaving him for another man uh, and he feels less than a person probably or like, Probably the same person, I guess, for his machismo uh, mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. Um, and then Yesenia, you know, I mean, she has that resentment. Um, I don't know. Okay. Just... Thank you. How long have we been? Are you guys almost ready, or is this like like two hours in? Yes, we're, we're all like almost done. This is like the video. I just need to go pee so bad. Oh shit! So bad. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I had no See, idea, dude. Wasn't help me. I thought we were gonna close it out. We were yeah. like right here. It's like we're so far in. It's like almost eleven. Yeah, it's late. So I I, I just thought about that uh, today. So I was like, oh man. Wait. It was eleven at night. Yeah. Ten forty. Now eleven in the morning. I mean, we've been here <laughs> all fucking. Like, night. wait, didn't we get here at seven thirty? Yeah. What the fucking shit. Yeah, we've been here. We've been talking a really long time. This Holy is long fuck, dude. We have to break this into two episodes. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Like, it's just like, there's there's so much to unpack, though. Yeah. Like, I still, like, I didn't even get to, like, <laughs> which I won't because it's just been too long. But, like, um, just, like, the fact that they have, like, no, like, reproductive education at all. Oh, yeah. Like, they don't know what consent is. Norma didn't know what her period was. She yeah. thought it had to do with, like, her stepdad, like, fingering her. 
Um, oh, yeah. Like, they have just, like, like no access to healthcare, but then, like, no education of it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't um, even know what's happening to their bodies. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah. Even, yeah. even with the parenthood, that's not, being, that's not knowledge being passed down. They're mm-hmm. just letting it happen. You know, they're they're self discovering. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's it's a like lot Brando. Of... He's self discovering sex. Nobody's there to lead, hold his hand, mm-hmm. and the instructions he is getting is just raping. violent. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like no one's guiding them to like. No hey, one's bro, guiding them at all. It's like, hey, bro, you don't want to do that. You, you can rape her, but you can't punch her. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like no, no, nobody says shit. It doesn't even yeah. matter. You know. You do whatever you want. <laughs> I wouldn't even doubt if like that was part of like. A weird back, like a hypocritical, like thinking, like oh they can do all this to him, but like punching him in the face was wrong. I could yeah. totally believe that being written in this book too. I think a, actually a lot of men believe that okay. rape is okay, but hitting women is not. Yeah, because a lot of people also just don't even know what rape is actually. Mm-hmm. That's the harsh truth, Hamby. <laughs> that's that's, it, real that's just the truth, my dude. All right. So I just finished. Uh, if you want to say your last question. Oh yeah, you were asking. You were asking. Are we gonna go quote again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what is a home? What is a home to these guys? That's um, mm-hmm. that's a good question. I didn't consider because I, I think that when we think about a home, um, like without without being like a Hobby Lobby poster, I think what makes a house a home is like an element of like love <laughs> and acceptance and community. Yep. And if you look at it, these people have like, yes, they have a roof over their head, but it, it's devoid of any kind of, of those kind of social aspects that you would imbue a home with, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Brando's always fighting with his mama. Um, Luis Me lives in a little shack that's removed from Munra and Chabella's house, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that that stri- and I think that that symbolically points to the the kind of uh, splitting a part of their like family unit, how it's broken. Yeah. Well, even like in the home of Chabella, like mm-hmm. when Norma's there, like Chabella offers her her kitchen, and mm-hmm. Norma's actually cooking food, mm-hmm. and she's making coffee, and she's making mm-hmm. eggs, and it seems like there's a home environment there. Yeah. But we know that the environment that they're actually living, like Louis, was out in the back, just chilling in a casita made out of mud and piece of cardboard yeah. yeah and then like the actuality is like Chabella's not the greatest person she's also not rich yeah you know mm-hmm. that yeah. this is like a facade like there is mm-hmm. to them that's a home but to us like it's kind of hard to interpret what a home would be because I don't think I guess it, it is a good question that resonates within this book but I feel like what Fernando Metatron wants us to understand is that there's no opportunities for anything like the eggs and the the nice clothes is maybe the extent of being well off, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and that's about yeah. it. If you have that, then you're good to go. And you can do whatever you want because Jabella does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like um, a home can really define you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you if you have a good home, you have a really good foundation. You know, you can have a lot more opportunities for knowledge, uh, access to education, and support. Mm-hmm. And I mean. Like you said, I mean, it's just absent in La Matosa, but it's also absent just in a lot of places. But it just made me think about it for these characters. Um, so I don't know if you end up picking up the book and you think about it. I mean, let me know what you think. Yeah. What is a, a home in La Matosa? That's a really interesting question. I wish we would have. Uh, <laughs> I wish you would have focused on that for the deep dive <laughs> discussion, too, because I think that's really important because Norma had a home, but she leaves it and, you know, she becomes homeless. And it's like, what is, mm-hmm. you know, what is that? What does that mean as opposed to these other characters that mm-hmm. do have a home? Um, maybe something that I'm thinking about that we didn't really get to talk about 
um, is the connection between uh, Luis Me and uh, El Luis Me and El Luis Miguel, uh, the actual uh, Mex- famous uh, Mexican singer Luis Miguel. So much of his music is intertwined into the novel like literally oh that's um, right yeah literally lyrics are built in <laughs> so that you would hear you know the lyric is stylized and built in so that you would read it as as music as you're reading these characters thoughts and so much of brando's i think um uh his desire for luis me mm-hmm. is connected to uh luis me's uh being able to sing these like beautiful beautiful ballads and show this kind of tenderness as he sings it's unfortunately i wish that um if anyone has any scholarship on that or if anybody knows the songs that they're referring to in the book, like please send them to us because that's something that I really wanted to explore. I think it's yeah. so embedded in the book. I just did not get a chance to because I'm not very familiar with the songs of Luis Miguel. I think there's actually, a, I think when we were reading this book, there's a Spotify playlist with yeah. all the <laughs> songs in it. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you just got to type in Hurricane Season. I think a, a playlist uh, pops up with all the songs that are referenced. Oh. Yeah, the Texas State University has a really good collection of uh, – Tex-Mex and Mexican music. Mm-hmm. Um, just a random, random thing. We, mm-hmm. uh, my dad sold them book, some books and stuff and records one time. So I learned that fun fact. Yeah. So if you guys want to go dig, go, go dig Rob, over there. Rob, did you have anything um, that you wanted to uh, bring up that we didn't get to uh, like address? Um, I guess one thing Amy could, if Amy could clarify, really, it's something that Fernanda said. Oh, okay. That uh, everybody thinks that we live in like the harshest times, right? No matter what part of your life we've grown up in the yep. 60s, whatever, 1800s. Uh, we're always going to the roughest part. But she says that during medieval times, this is the reference she used, during medieval time, women and children weren't even regarded as people. And so I guess I was wondering if maybe you can elaborate or maybe shine a light on some uh, uh, enlightening improvements and just kind of like uh, the women have been able to actually go through in the sense of the meaning behind hurricane season and Fernanda's message. And like, it, are things being more like the more we learn about it are are we able to solve some of these issues and like come be different than medieval times because like i said everybody thinks it's different or hard right so like absolutely like women are always like making tremendous progress even just from the 50s which is actually not even that long ago and from the 70s um when abortion was first became legal i mean we have made like tremendous progress and we still continue to but it's it's more of just um it's a lot of it is the way that you raise people the way that you especially the women but then also the men um Mm -hmm. the way that you teach them to treat others and respect others and not as like oh women are these like you know delicate little objects don't hit them but like they are people and they're smart and they're capable of just as much as you are um i feel like a lot of it is even now like it's still like education towards women as like more of um i hear like the quote a lot like oh like that could have been someone's sister or mother or this and it's like she's a person like she doesn't have to be related to like a man like Mm -hmm. oh that could have been someone's sister she could not be a sister or a mother or anything. Mm. She's a person first and foremost. And although we see a lot of, you know, tremendous violence in this book, I mean, there definitely does show that like the women in the book are strong. Um, They're 
entrepreneurs maybe in some sort of ways <laughs> yeah well it's a normal point. took on the weight on for herself and so does yesenia and they do it with while still being kind of shit on by everybody else yeah. exactly exactly norma like she takes it on her to herself to leave her situation which she shouldn't have had to but of course um women have always had to do that <laughs> um and yeah i do believe that although some of the women especially like shabella are not like the best of people they are definitely doing the best that they can in their situation in mm -hmm. their circumstance which is a really awful circumstance mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. for shabella what she's doing regarding like the sex trafficking is terrible but it's also um shows like her like possibly even like survival instinct of like i'm just mm -hmm. gonna make that bag like no matter what even mm -hmm. if it's exploiting fellow girls fellow mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. yeah um, i think there's a lot of that sentiment in hurricane season yeah I, I think like definitely in hurricane season it's very as we've mentioned like it's very like it's about you know me myself and i like how am i gonna get out of here how am i gonna make money mm -hmm. um and kind of just stepping over everyone else mm -hmm. um but the women do seem to have like that drive in hurricane season um i think yeah. uh going back to your question i mean how have things improved i guess it would be um probably your opportunity for your work that you do um i mean they Run did not the have that in the Randy. 50s. <laughs> they did not have that opportunity in the 50s and 70s, you know. Uh, so I think that's like sex education, I think, is also absent in this book, but also something we should probably talk about. Um, but it's something that's coming up more, I think, and uh, hopefully it just improves. I mean, it definitely will. Right. And so something I didn't, I wasn't able to say was just, yeah, lack of like, um, no reproductive education at all. Like I know uh, yeah. Norma, when she gets her period, she doesn't even know what what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like part of like my day job working with like Texas Wears Condoms is like distributing condoms, um, and a lot of it is actually to small towns where the people who we survey, um, they take like a an online survey. They actually say like, oh, like you know, the there's only one convenience store, and mm -hmm. like you know, it's one of those towns where everyone knows each other. Yeah, and we are the only way that they can access condoms and dental dams and lube. Mm. And if it wasn't for us, they would be having like unprotected sex. Mm. Oh, um, wow. I forgot how yeah. I tied that in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just great well, too. Cause like the sex education, like I know it's absent from the book, but this mm -hmm. book itself just being so out there and highly acclaimed, that's an education in its own. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's a movement that this book is able to exist. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think that one of the main reasons why like, um, we see this spiral of violence happening is yeah, because of the lack of access and, and education because these women don't have a safe place where they can go to get this procedure done. So they have to use these kind of extra legal methods like uh, using the witch and things like that. And I think that this book makes a great point about access, opportunity, and the value of education. Right. And not to like undermine like the effort of like, um, what are they called? Midwives at yeah. all? Because um, they actually have been uh, very important in like the history of abortion. Mm -hmm. And when they do um, have the proper education, they can perform like an abortion totally uh, properly. And, you know, I think something that um, I don't know if we've mentioned or not, but like the witch was 
to me, like, I mean, she she did a service to the community. Yeah. You know, whether did. people people didn't want to admit that mm-hmm. um, the characters didn't want to. But everyone went to her for, you know, some sort of like remedy or medicine or mm-hmm. sex mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah. despite the fact that she was hated by everyone, everyone did seem to go to her for something that they didn't need. Mm-hmm. And I have to say an important in bringing that up, an important detail of the book, I think, is that the at the very beginning, uh, the, the women of Lamatosa want to want the witch's body and they want to give her a proper funeral because they acknowledge the worth and the value of what she does. But it's the police in conjunction with the hospital who won't release the body. And that just kind of goes to show the way that these two kind of systems, you know, the medicine system and the law system are even, even in death, they're kind of like oppressing the witch and they're kind of barring the women still literally barring women access to this body, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You got the book too. Uh, Ambie, was there anything else, like any kind of one-off thing that you wanted like to mention that we didn't get a chance to address or discuss? Honestly, I feel like I I have a, a lot of notes, mm-hmm. um, and I really do feel like I discussed every every single yeah. thing that I could possibly yeah. discuss. Was there, was there any like one off about the book? Anything that got you like what was the beer like? What were those empanadas that we made out of crab meat at at that place where the El Metadoro where they actually oh, yeah. made of crab meat because they're supposed to use like like what is it the goat nachos, but they're actually dog or something. <laughs> Remember that's in the book. Oh, yeah, it's in the oh, book. Man. See, that's in the book. You know, I, you know, there's those little things and there's little details in the, in the book. You just kind of fly over because uh, it happens so quick. To I guess. Bring that up yeah. Later. yeah. So one thing uh, I want to say is actually bringing up our next book. Oh yeah, uh, Passage to the Plaza, which uh, has um, you just remind me of it because it's about a midwife in Palestine. Um, or, uh, yeah, Nebulous uh, Palestine uh, in the 80s, 1987. Uh, and it, it's funny because she is educated in sex education and reproductive um, health, and she's able to uh, perform pregnancies and abortions, and she helps all these people, but she plays a very different role in that in this society. Uh, Passage to Plaza by Sahar uh, Khalifa. Uh, is our next book. Next uh, I chose this yes. one. It's great. It's uh, the female perspective uh, during the 1987 Intifada occupation in Palestine. Uh, it's really cool. Uh, Amy, if you want to read it with us, feel free to. I will yeah. definitely be reading yeah. that. Yeah, cool. that sounds amazing. It, uh, it's really great. Uh, I promise you guys we won't have like a 20-minute history lesson <laughs> on the occupation. <laughs> it's like a top, into 100 a, yeah. Books, yeah. Uh, top 100 book for Palestinian female authors, too. Like, it is. It's, really, it's not yeah. that long to read, but it's definitely – so for such a small book, is yeah. packed with just so much – Super another another outside world that with real problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Super excited. Another great female voice. And I believe that this is the first book this season we're doing that's from the Middle East, right? So far. Yeah. So far we so have far. Japan, we have uh Germany, and we have uh Mexico. And I think <laughs> that this is gonna be our first one uh for the Middle East. Do you yeah. know specifically the country? Uh yeah, Palestine. Yeah. Palestine, yeah. excellent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Palestine and and then um Yeah, so the Story takes place in Nebulous Palestine. That's where the author is from. Mm-hmm. So she has, uh, she has a really good way of describing uh, the whole town and all. And I think there's a uh, a lot to unravel uh, in our next episode. Uh, I'm really excited for you guys to read it and join in the conversation. Can't wait to discuss it with you guys. Uh, yeah. So uh, to wrap it up, thank you all so much for listening. 
thank you, Hustlers. Hope you guys join our crew. Follow us on social media at SHBC Podcast on Instagram. Um, and if you, thank you, Ambi, of course, for yeah, joining us. Uh, it has been a pleasure yeah. to have you. Would here. you like? Uh, would you like to uh, take this opportunity to shamelessly plug your organization? Oh yeah, oh, I would do love it. to. Yeah, oh, no, hell yeah. 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 Hey, you made it. it. You made it through. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, let's talk for this long. We can. Yeah. We can. <laughs> Um, you can follow Abortion Postcard on Instagram at Abortion Postcard Project. Um, we are working on a website right now. Not out yet, but we will definitely announce when it is out. We already have merch in the making. And please, 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 even if you are not an artist, please um, send your abortion positive art so that it can be posted. It can be anonymous. Um, it's... <laughs> And um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we loved everything you've contributed to the conversation, and I don't mm-hmm. think we really, to be honest with you, I don't think that we could have talked about this, the things that we wanted to talk about in hurricane season without you here. I really don't y- think so. Y'all needed a female voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said it, so we didn't yeah. have to. No, I was thinking because yeah. I remember what you were doing, and yeah. I told Patty, I was like, "Did you want to see if Patty wants to be on or Amby?" <laughs> I told Patty if Amby wanted, if you wanted to be on it, and I'm glad you said yes. Yeah, yeah. it's a nerve wracking uh, first time like performance, but. It, I think it did really well. Thank you. Definitely enlightening. And I'll I'll make sure to put, like, you guys do want to check out her organization. I'll be, I'll put links on our page too. That way it's, it's more accessible for her also because it's important to all of us as well. All right. Well, thank you hustlers. Tune in next time for our next episode. See you guys later. Later y'all.